start, let's just review a local case. Uh, it was, this is kind of my prototypical camping story by the, the fire pot for 10 and under kids about the one-armed schizophrenic. So there was this gentleman, he was a schizophrenic, and God spoke to him, and God said, son, you really got to stop playing with yourself, uh, and he couldn't. So God said, son, you're just going to have to cut your arm off. So he built himself a guillotine um, just down from the hospital at Bug Lake, and here it is. So I'm going to walk you through some of these things. So this is this big piece of metal here, and uh, let's see if I can go to the next slide. So this is a pretty big, uh, pretty big apparatus, and you know where I'm talking about. It's as you go down Squalcom Parkway, and it makes that big turn, just right inside there, right next to the urology office. And uh, this guy planned it out amazingly well. He went over to Kmart, did some shoplifting over there, got some knives just in case there was like some extra tissue that you need to cut away. Came up to the ER, faked some illness. Oh, thanks. Um, got some bandages, stole some bandages. And uh, so let's just kind of just, there we go. Okay, so you can see just by the person there, that's a pretty big device, a project going on there. Had a seat, you know, didn't want to just pass out, so he had a seat where he could sit there and stick his arm through. He had his utensils, he had a knife, had some scissors just in case he needed to cut some tissue, had a hammer just in case things went wrong and he'd hit himself in the head. That's what he said? Yeah. And uh, got a spit cup there. And you can see the big knives, the big, big knives that he got courtesy of Kmart. And, uh, a, of course, he's smoking, so he's going to need some, some smokes and some lighters. And uh, smoking and mental illness is 100% connected, if you haven't noticed. Here's his bandages. You know, he did not deploy these because I think he lost his mind after he cut his arm off. So here's, he was going to uh, kind of have an angle like this. That's a, that's a lot of metal to go through. So he kind of filed this down, and it worked actually just fine because of the weight. And uh, it was big. It was like this wide by this tall. So there he is. So, so what happened is he cut it off, and this is in late October, right? Just maybe six days before Halloween. He cuts his arm off. He walks over to the urology center, and walks in with blood spurting out of his arm. It's like, happy Halloween. <laughs> He didn't say happy Halloween, <laughs> but, you know, I'm thinking. So Dr. Casey O'Keefe's on duty there, and he's like, holy sh crap. And uh, he clamps him and calls 911, 
and you guys bring them up to the ER where I see them and get them intubated and, and send them down to Harborview, uh, find his arm, bring his arm in. And uh, they did not reimplant his arm because, well, first of all, you don't want to go against what God has to say. But the patient said, if you reimplant the arm, I will cut the arm off. And they believed him. So they threw the arm away. And now there's a one-arm schizophrenic out there somewhere in the bushes that makes for the best campfire story for 10 and under. <laughs> and so, so if you have nephews, you know, cousins, and you want to give them a little PTSD, maybe let them wet their bed on a camping trip, you tell them this story yeah. and you throw a couple of these pictures in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You hit like all of them all at once. <laughs> There it is. You said the urologist planted him. Is that the yeah. plant they used? Yeah. So he found the artery and planted it. Yeah, it was pretty easy because it was hosing out, squirting out. Did the patient put a tourniquet on? or did? No. No, they put the tourniquet on. And this was before they had the really nice tourniquets, but they did a really good job. And this kind of shows uh, the, uh, the adage, the wisdom that all bleeding eventually stops, right? And, um, and then you go into cardiac arrest. And we've had cases like that where somebody has bled their entire blood volume out. The last one I remember in Whatcom County that was just so dramatic was, I think it was all the way up in Sumas, and a guy butcher-knifed his wife and just happened to get her, like, under the arm. Like, the worst place you want to get stabbed or get shot is axillary because it's really hard in junctional sites to get control of that bleeding. And because she's on Sumas, and it was a police action, it was domestic violence, and, and he was in the house shooting out while she's bleeding out. And uh, so it was hard to get to her, so she basically bled out. They did CPR all the way in, put you know a bunch of crystalloid fluid, which was awesome. Her heart came back for a while because she was young um, and then she bled out all this clear fluid and then we dumped a bunch of blood in her got her going again but she had become hypothermic from all the products and she went into this cascade of um, hypothermia uh, coagulation issues disseminated intravascular coagulation which we'll talk about and then she died in the operating room so it happens but it's rare. All right, so that's that. Let me get rid of that, and let's just start the lecture. Now, some of the goals, um, I looked at the PowerPoint that your book has, and that's all nice and fun, but I want you guys to be able to um, think. You need to be able to think instead of just memorize things for a test. And when you're talking about shock, you're talking about physiology. So we're going to talk about physiology. And so for every shock state, we're going to, we're going to make kind of a, uh, a chart on all the shocks and by the time we're done. And you're going to be able to, I'm going to say distributive shock. What's, what's going on with the stroke volume? What's going on with the heart rate? what's going on with systemic vascular resistance, what's going on with cardiac output, 
and you're gonna be able to like, no problem. You'll have it down, okay? All right, let's, uh, and a lot of this is um, kind of an overview. Have you guys had um, uh, the uh, uh, burn lecture, the ABLS, Advanced Burn Life Support? Anyone had that? That's a good course. Um, where am I supposed to see this? Uh, am I just missing it here? It's probably very bottom left. So general principles and pathophysiology. Um, why isn't that? Okay. So shock is a protective mechanism. Physiology is trying to protect you. We're always trying to balance, be in balance with our body. Um, it's not pathological. It's not, you know, um, something that's attacking you, um, it's something that's trying to save you. So we want to define shock in terms of its cellular function and physiology, what's happening to the body. Um, and it's not, um, I call it, you know, gonzo paramedic. The gonzo, which is the me paramedic, that patient. Me see low blood pressure, me treat with diesel fuel, me take patient to ER. Yeah, okay, it's not that. We're going to be uh, going at a higher level than that. Um, so we'll want to know exactly what's going on in the body. So we'll talk about the requirements for adequate cellular perfusion because that's really the bottom line with shock. It's, it's a perfusion problem, okay? Um, we'll talk a little bit about fluid homeostasis, define blood pressure, and one of the key concepts here is low blood pressure does not equal shock. And you're like, what are you talking about? Low blood pressure does not equal shock. You'll get it here in a little bit. Um, we'll discuss uh, some of the blood things that are going in the body. Your body's trying to clot. At the same time, it's losing clotting factor, so it's trying to unclot, clot, unclot. Um, and then you can get into an overwhelming uh, problem called disseminated intravascular coagulation, which is um, basically loss of all your clotting factors, and then you just you weep from everywhere. You bleed from your eyes, basically. Uh, we'll talk about the body's compensation to shock. Uh, the stages and the symptoms of shock, which I think you guys have got that down. I think you've seen, has anybody here seen a patient in shock? Treated a patient in profound shock? Okay. Your wife, your girlfriend could easily say, that's shock. Yeah, okay. So we've all seen that. Um, that's good. Um, trying to identify those patients before they get to that level where they're got a blood pressure of 50 and a heart rate of 180 and completely pale, you know, that would be good. We want to kind of catch them earlier. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about multiple organ dysfunction because that's the road to the, to the funeral home. And then we'll discuss treatment options. And I'll, I'll give you not only what you can do, because there's only so much you can do. 
you know, Gonzo actually might be correct. Treat with diesel, treat with gas, you know. Get, get them to the hospital where Gonzo surgeon goes, me surgeon, me heal with steel. Me chance to cut, chance to cure. Bring to OR now, you know. So, you know. So, so we'll talk about what we do in the field, what we do in the ER, and what we do in the operating room um, at the highest level. If it's, you know, 25-year-old guy versus, like, a 90-year-old person, what are we going to do to save their life? And we'll do the same thing with burns, and it's just amazing what they can do and what's on the horizon. I'll kind of give you the what's coming next, which is pretty freaking cool. All right. Okay, so I kind of adapted this lecture from like 10 years ago. So I was looking at this um, and trying to uh, kind of update in my mind, you know, fact check myself, actually. So most common cause of shock after trauma, of course, it's hemorrhagic. It's not septic. Uh, although, can you see septic shock in an uh, old guy that strikes a telephone pole? Yeah, you got trauma, uh, you have an MI and cardiogenic shock, and then you don't know if he's got, um, you know, tr uh, hemorrhagic shock, hypovolemic shock. So you, you can have things mixed up. Same thing, somebody's septic and gets in an auto accident or falls down the stairs. And so you can have a mixed picture. Uh, 30 to 40% of all fatalities are from hemorrhagic shock, second only to TBI. You can do anything to your body from the neck down and pretty much survive these days with the technology that we have. But from here up, that's the problem. There's not much you can do to an injured brain. Uh, it is what it is. So 1.2 million present each year with shock, 20 to 50% mortality. That's actually improved, um, but still, it's pretty bad. Um, uh, and I'm not talking about just hemorrhagic shock. I'm talking about all comers. The most common shock is septic shock. Who in here, by a raise of hands, has seen septic shock? Okay. So you've all spiked a bag of norepinephrine. Is that correct? Okay. So norepinephrine is kind of the, the pathway that we end up in shock. Yeah. Can we address that real quick? Uh, mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to address that um, here on the PowerPoint, and then I'm going to address that here. And we're going to see how fast can you give a liter of fluid, okay? And if your transport time is three minutes, you're not going to be able to get a liter of fluid in. I could. I can get a liter of fluid in in one minute, okay? Um, but it all depends on what you're doing, what your access is, what you're using. 
catheter size. So we're going to talk about that, and then we're going to have you guys kind of demonstrate it to yourself, uh, which is kind of nice to, you know, it'll stick in your brain a lot easier. So we'll talk about that quite a bit. And what the literature is showing is that you start with your fluid resuscitation, and you've already determined the physiology going on. Start mix, mixing up that levofed drip, and then initiate that as the fluids are going in, st starting up on that as you're like really giving a, a quick fluid bolus. Um, and they found uh, decreased mortality and morbidity, you know, by almost combining them together. So, but but there are downsides, and you got to know the downsides. What do you think the downsides of vasopressors are? Absolutely, you knock off the kidneys. Okay, why would you knock off the kidneys? That's right. Yeah, so as you constrict the blood vessels, you reduce the blood flow. When you reduce the blood flow, you reduce the amount of oxygen getting to the tissues. In other words, you're reducing perfusion. It's all about perfusion. And when you do that, you um, increase your metabolic acidosis and you have problems. So it's all about balancing everything. The art comes in. So when you look at an ICU, uh, and this is, this is pretty much true, well, we don't get trauma codes every single day, but I can guarantee you every single day we see somebody in septic shock every single day because old guys, you know, if you live long enough, your prostate enlarges enough, you're going to get a UTI and get septic. Um, pneumonias. I just had a, a patient come in, not yesterday, but the day before I did a 24-hour shift, and blood pressure is 70, and, and his root cause of all of his problems, other than having leukemia and no blood uh, and no white blood cells, he had some acid reflux, burped something up, and then aspirated it, and then just went within 12 hours, just complete nosedive, and came in in florid shock. And he's doing fine now. And so I'll kind of use him as a, kind of as a tool to, to discuss some of these shock states. So 20% hypovolemic, 20% uh, cardiogenic. That's our STEMIs gone bad, STEMIs that don't call us in time. But 60% septic. So that's what you're going to see. You're going to see septic shock. In my classic, um, uh, so I spent 15 years with District 4 out in the field. And I can remember um, a paramedic student probably back in 1998 or so. Are you talking about me right now? No, it's not you. Okay. No, it's not you. I could do the name. But so it's like 5 in the morning. We're at this little house on Klein Road. You walk in the house, and it was for respiratory distress. Go in the back bedroom. You walk in, and the first thing you get is this, whoa, man, the smell. Smells like piss, like the urea. You can totally smell it, right? So, I mean, I knew right away what the problem was. Um, but there was this bias. There were blinders on. We're going to a respiratory distress call. So the paramedic students, uh, the guy's sitting in a chair in his bedroom, and the paramedic student's on his knees, and he's trying to put an IV in. And uh, the other medic is getting an albuterol ready to go. But the guy's not wheezing, haven't checked the lung sounds yet, and they're putting him on albuterol. And what does albuterol do? 
Yeah, yeah. It it goes to the bronchial smooth muscles. It's a beta agonist, uh, so it helps relax the muscles around the bronchial tubes. That's the target. That's what you're doing. You say to your mind, I got a patient that's got too much tension on their bronchial muscles. I need to relax them. And then you deploy that. So this was, uh, we have somebody that has, is breathing too fast. That equals albuterol. That's not the case. So the paramedic student's doing the IV, and the guy pees all over him. Like, just clue number one, here's the problem. And so he was in, he it was euroseptic. And it was, I was just kind of in the back, just kind of watching this. And finally, I kind of said, um, hey, what's his heart rate? Oh, heart rate's 140. You might not want to give him the albuterol unless he's really wheezing, but I don't hear any wheezing. Um, and so he was tachypnic, but why was he tachypnic? Yeah, yeah. And so we're going to be able to look at the physiology of that and know exactly what's going on when those things are happening. So mortality of sepsis, 30 to 80%. It's 80% if you completely miss the bus. It's 80% if you don't have uh, a sepsis code team, which has taken over 10 years to figure out at St. Joe's. And when I was there, I mean, I'm a pretty aggressive kind of guy. I'm like, in there, central lines, antibiotics. I'll answer all the other questions later, but I'm going to do the life-saving stuff. If it's a stroke, they're going in on the EMS gurney to the CT scanner. I, I want to know right now. They're finally getting there, which is good. <clears throat> Cardiogenic shock, uh, it's even worse. Um, you start at a 50% mortality, and then you go from there. Although we do have some... Uh, mechanical circulatory devices now that are pretty cool, which I'll show you. Um, still, it's, it's a hard thing. All right, so these are the, the equations that you need to know. First one, cerebral perfusion pressure. It's at the top, which means, you know, if, you're, if your body was animated, your brain's like, I'm the boss. I'm the boss of everybody. And the heart's like, uh, I don't think so. I'm the boss of everybody, because if I don't beat and give you blood, you're dead. And, but the brain's gone, well, yeah, well, um, I can shut you down. <laughs> so, you know, so it's, is it between the heart or the brain? So it's the brain, because that's what makes us. So cerebral perfusion pressure is dependent on blood pressure minus intracranial pressure. Okay? So that's a good thing to know. If you don't have enough blood pressure, um, you're going to die. And so the two major factors with traumatic brain injury is hypoxia and hypotension. If you address those two things, that's the best that you can do for a major TBI patient. Okay? And then also try to reduce the intracranial pressure because you're really just treating, cerebral, uh, treating perfusion in the brain. Next one down here, and I would write all of these down because we're going to be using all of these as we go through the different shock states. Your mean arterial pressure is your cardiac output times your, times your systemic vascular resistance. And I'll, I'll go over these again and again. If you hear me repeat myself multiple times, that's a clue that that's something that you need to know cold at 3 o'clock in the morning. Okay? So... Is there any way that you guys can 
figure out the mean arterial pressure on your patients. Yeah. yeah. The blood pressure cuff will give it to you if you do the auto cuff. Yeah, yeah, it's in parentheses, right? Because otherwise, you got to kind of, like, I, I'm sorry, I just can't do math when somebody's dying in front of me. Just can't do it. So they actually put it there for us. But you can figure it out, which is one-third of the pulse pressure. Pulse pressure is systemic, I'm sorry, systolic blood pressure minus diastolic blood pressure divided by three plus the diastolic blood pressure. That's the easiest way to do it. There's all sorts of different formulas that are like that, but that's the easiest way to go. And 60 is, okay, we've got some perfusion. You know, we've got time. In sepsis, we want it at least around 65. So blood pressure is equal to cardiac output times stroke volume. Cardiac output is a product of heart rate times stroke volume. So if somebody were to ask you, how do you define blood pressure? How do you define it? Ability to perfuse the volume. I mean, okay. the, the rate at which the body is perfused. Okay. It's related to your left ventricle, your left side of your heart. So just the pressure that your, your left ventricle is uh, putting into your arteries. Okay. The best definition is blood pressure is a product of heart rate, how fast your heart's going, how much it can pump out in one beat, stroke volume, and how tight your pipes are, systemic vascular resistance. Those three factors. And so we'll work through all of the shock states and we'll address um, you know, wh what's going on with each one of those. So pulse pressure uh, is systolic blood pressure minus diastolic blood pressure. So if you had somebody with a blood pressure of 70 over 50, what's their pulse pressure? 20. It's not very good. So you'll feel that in the radial pulse. And you'll sit there and go, I don't even know if I feel a radial pulse. You know? And then you're wondering, I don't know, am I feeling my own pulse? You know? <laughs> We've all been there. We've all been what, what is going on there? Oh, I'm going to the neck. I'm going to feel it there. So the pulse pressure assesses that uh, amount of blood that's pumped out with each beat. Okay, It's transmitted from the heart all the way down to the radial pulse. Normal is about 30 to 40. Um, low is less than 25% of your systolic blood pressure, um, or basically less than 25 is... You're, it's going to be a thready pulse. It's going to be, um, uh, you know, a diminished pulse. And everything I know about medicine, I learned on the show Emergency. So I might have to throw in a couple of emergency things. Pretty much it covers all of it. I'm an expert on that. Uh, for a widened pulse pressure, uh, it's going to be high. So what kind of patients do you think would have a widened pulse pressure? Cushings. Cushings, Okay. Okay, so give me, a, give me a blood pressure that you would consider a widened blood pressure. 180 over 70. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, or 200 over 100, so it'd be like over 100. So it's going to be somebody that's hyperdynamic, you know, thyrotoxicosis, uh, uh, aortic valve issues, uh, hypertensive patients. Um, then some people use the shock index, which is the heart rate divided by the systolic blood pressure.
And when your blood pressure equals your heart rate, it's just not good. That's what Gonzo uses. Heart rate, blood pressure, same, not good. <laughs> so, uh, and then finally, this equation here, once you are able to work this equation, you've got it. Okay, so this is a buffer equation that's going on in the body all the time. So you have this carbonic acid, H2CO3, and it's either moving this way or this way, depending on how much you have in your system. So if you have, say, a COPD -er that um, is not breathing effectively, they're in respiratory failure, what's going on with them? Hypercarbic. Hypercarbic. This builds up. This builds up, they can't get rid of it, it goes back into the bloodstream, and the body, the liver kind of has this carbonic acid, it, it uh, buffers it, and then it pushes it this way, and their bicarbonate level plummets. At the same time, their hydrogen level increases, and pH is the negative log of the hydrogen ion. But if you just think of lots of hydrogen ions, that's acidosis, that's metabolic. So you go from a respiratory acidosis, which is too much CO2, and then you can go to a metabolic acidosis and then multi-system organ failure. So we'll want to think about what's going on um, with this. It's, that's really important. Are we, so, we going to talk about the effects of acidosis? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. What are the effects of acidosis? Mm -hmm. Because because this builds up, this hydrogen ion builds up, and it pushes it this way. You get increased carbon dioxide. Increased carbon dioxide around your respiratory centers in your cerebral spinal fluid, and your brain goes, holy crap, we've got to increase the respiratory rate. We've got too much CO2, so you start breathing fast. Same thing happens in all shock states. And so this hydrogen ion, instead, hydrogen ion, usually you get it out metabolically through the kidneys. Uh, but in acute states, you breathe it off. You make CO2. And then, so you breathe that off, and life's good again. What other things with acidosis does it affect? Your uh, renal function increases to off Your renal function to a certain degree? Yeah, if it can. But if you're hypovolemic, it can't. Okay. What else? Hmm? Altered mental status? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Um, what it does is it, it hits the heart and it decreases contractility. So it affects this. It affects your ability to get a good stroke volume. And it, um, the body's trying to like hide these hydrogen ions, try to get rid of the hydrogen ions. It goes to the, to the kidneys, and the kidneys say, sorry, don't have enough fluid. You're screwed. Um, then it goes back to the lungs and says, hey, can, can we uh, get some off here? Okay, yeah, you can get some off here. Uh, but it just continues to build up. Um, then it says, uh, let's shove it in the cells. So it tries to shove it in the cells, but it has to exchange with something, and it exchanges with potassium. So your potassium level increases, and then have a problem. Yeah, but, right. um, systemic 
It can, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can dilate things out, but depending on the shock state, yeah. So we'll talk a little bit about that. So, so when we're talking about shock, we're talking about inadequate tissue perfusion. And the bottom line is your body's going into anaerobic metabolism on the cellular level. Okay? So that's a huge concept. And it's the final common pathway of all death is what happens there. So here's your aerobic metabolism. This is what we're doing right now. And glucose comes along. It's got some oxygen. And you guys had all of that, you know, basic, it's kind of like high school, you know, biochemistry and stuff. And, and I hated all that stuff. And it's still in my brain. I hate the Krebs cycle. I hate glycolysis and methylmalonic acid and alpha glutaric and all that kind of stuff. You know, just make it simple. Just make it simple. So if you have uh, aerobic metabolism, you're generating energy. You're generating 36 adenosine triphosphate, ATP molecules. That's the energy that runs the individual cell. That's your currency. That's your money. Generate some carbon dioxide, generate some water, and it generates heat. And that's why, as an organism, we can maintain our body heat between like 97 degrees and 98.7, that's a very narrow margin. You know, if we drop from 98 to 95, that's only three degrees. Come on, it's only three degrees. But if we're at 95, we're screwed, right? We're entering into hypothermia. Same thing if we're going from 98 to 101, we're going hypermetabolic. So it's a very narrow window that the body's uh, got going on, and it's just a little turn of the screwdriver um, that fixes things. So for anaerobic metabolism, guess what? You don't have any oxygen. A-N, root, it means without, so anaerobic. Uh, so you only have glucose. goes in. It only generates two ATP, not enough. Now, when you're thinking about this, you're thinking about the individual cell. Multiply it by, like, two billion, right? And then you can kind of see the concept. And you're producing lactic acid, pyruvate, turns into lactic acid. And look at how much heat you're producing. So hypothermia is a big thing in a shock state. And hypothermia causes your clotting factors to not work. All right? So we've already kind of hit the triad, the bad triad of shock. Metabolic acidosis, coagulopathy, hypothermia. And they just kind of, it's a vicious circle uh, that you kind of go down the drain in. And that's what we're trying to stop. So we have inadequate cellular oxygenation. Goes into anaerobic metabolism because there's no oxygen for the cell. Not enough energy production as far as ATP. Uh, Go into metabolic failure. Boom, you're dead. You're uh, producing lactic acid. And that's why you kind of see um, in the pre-hospital setting, we're trying to screen people uh, with lactate meters, okay, to kind of sometimes the patients will fool you. And I put these out in the islands like maybe 10 years ago, and, uh, and then it became 
they were doing, you know, somebody's got a cut on their finger and they're doing a glucose, even though they're mentating normally. They're doing a lactate. They're doing, you know, the full meal deal. They weren't kind of dialing it in. But there are certain patients, you know, that you don't know why they're breathing fast, and, but their lungs are clear, it's, and their blood pressure is 100, and you're just not sure. And then if you have the ability to check a lactate and their lactate's 5, you're like, oh, this person's really sick. I got a code red response here, and you treat them and bring them in. So because that lactate production is going to produce metabolic acidosis and uh, because there's not enough perfusion to buffer that stuff. All right, so when you run out of energy, the bottom line, again, is the sodium-potassium ATPase pump. You guys ever heard of that? Okay. So uh, the body tries to maintain uh, its volume between, there's, there's three spaces, right? There's the intracellular space, there's the intravascular space, and then there's the interstitial space. Have you ever heard the term third spacing? Okay, that's when you're dumping fluid into the interstitial space and then your whole body swells up. And that's a big thing with burns or any distributive shock. So um, if you've got enough ATP, uh, it will take sodium and bring it in and it'll bring potassium out. Water loves to follow sodium. Water is in love with sodium. Actually, it's in love with a couple things. It likes glucose a lot. They've been dating for quite a while. And then they like sodium uh, because, you know, you eat salt, you're going to, you know, you need beer. Salt, beer, beer and pretzels. It's, it's as easy as beer and pretzels. So, so this is not going on on the molecular level in shock. It doesn't have enough energy and therefore you get this influx of fluid into the cell, it swells and it ruptures and it dies, okay? It happens in the heart with a heart attack, acute coronary syndrome. It happens throughout the body in overwhelming shock states. Um, it's happening in the nerves. It's happening uh, after you get ROSC on a patient. That's what's going on in the brain cells. Um, yeah, there's a lot of other things going on, calcium flux and different things, but bottom line, this is the big problem. All right. So what we want to do is we want to kind of bring the patient back to homeostasis. And it does require functioning systems. And if you're young, you might be able to tolerate more than one system going down at a time. Like maybe your kidneys go down, but your respiratory system is able to compensate and your heart is able to compensate. But if you get multi-system organ dysfunction, it gets really, really difficult uh, without some sort of external uh, support like extracorporeal uh, membrane oxygenation, ECMO, hemodialysis. I mean, we can take over these functions, but there's a cost. So it requires functioning systems. And again, you can see here, uh, it basically it's it's tissue perfusion, you start losing your ATP, go into anaerobic metabolism, and you go into the spiral of death, which is hydrogen ion, lactic acid production, and acidosis. All right, that's as much basic chemistry as I'm going to get to. So cellular response is impaired cellular metabolism and decreased oxygen use. 
And I'll, I'll tell you, just from doing this for a long time, if you can take a complex topic, complex um, subject, bring it down into its basic things and be able to explain it to a fourth grader, you've got it. And the only way that you will hold on to these type of topics is you have to teach it to somebody else. You've got to explain it to somebody else, and then they have to explain it back to you. And if you do that after something like this, you will hold on to that information for forever. And then if you do it like with a weird accent, <laughs> like I'll have an Irish, I'll have an Irish accent that uh, add a little uh, levity to it, and then you'll remember it even better. So going into anaerobic metabolism, not enough ATP. Sodium pump goes out. Intracellular water enters the cell, and boom, it kind of blows up. And with that, you get impaired glucose usage. Glucose, remember, glucose and oxygen, that's what runs the body. Um, that's our fuel. And as you do that, your body goes on red alert and throws out all sorts of cytokines, inflammatory response. That's what we're seeing with uh, COVID-19. It's exactly what's going on. Okay. All right. So you've got this inciting event. And if you're a 24-year-old healthy motorcycle rider, um, you're kind of far away from the cliff. If you're an 80-year-old with Parkinson's disease that's had his 15th fall of the week, he's closer to the edge here. Okay? So you kind of have to know where they're at. The more comorbidities you have, the closer you are on the physiologic cliff on a daily basis from falling over. So as you go along and you have your inciting event, your body tries to compensate. It wants to get back to homeostasis. Um, and the closer you are to the cliff, the harder uh, it is uh, time-wise to get that compensation up and running. Uh, if you can't do that, you go into a decompensated shock, and that's kind of one foot over the cliff looking down. Um, and if we do not um, provide meaningful therapy, boom, they go into end organ dysfunction, and finally, they're dead. Okay? So it's as easy as a stick figure to understand, and I'll explain that here a little bit more. So when you're out there evaluating a patient, um, a lot of things, a lot of stuff is nonverbal, right? You walk in the door, and you know, you know the veteran paramedic you've been with, and you know, like Joe, Joe, Joe walk in the room, it's like, look around this way, look around that way, and he already knows everything he needs to know, okay? He's using all of his senses listening, smelling, visual. He sees the meds over in the corner. He sees, you know, uh, the doctor's notes over here. He sees the patient unconscious here. He kind of pu pulls everything together. And initially, as a student or, you know, in your first year or so, you're just trying to survive and go, what do I do next? Blood pressure, vital signs, yeah, do this, do this. And uh, you're trying to do your protocols instead of it all just kind of coming in together holistically. And, but that comes with time. And uh, so first thing you kind of want to know is, you know, what are you dealing with? Uh, uh, is your patient on a physiologic cliff? Uh, what's their physiologic reserve? How fast are they moving towards the edge of the cliff? And then what actually do you think is going on? 
and making that diagnosis of what type of shock you have or just the fact that you're, the patient's in shock is huge. And that's where understanding what's going on in the body will help you. All right, so knowing the physiologic reserve, how far are they away from the cliff and how fast they're moving there is important. So shock, let's just make it easy. It's all about pipes and the pump. That's it. That's how easy it is. Um, and with the pipes, you either don't have enough water, enough fluid, which is hypovolemia, and that could be, you know, hemorrhagic shock. What do you think the most common shock, what, the most common reason kids die in the world? What's the most common shock for kids? Diarrhea. Diarrhea, yeah. It's a hypovolemic, not, not hemorrhagic, but hypovolemic, not enough water because they don't have um, any fluids. So back in the 18-somethings, can't remember. I was actually going to bring this, but I was post-call and I forgot uh, kind of a thing on normal saline versus lactated ringers. But there was a huge cholera epidemic. And uh, there was this guy um, named Ringers, physiologist, who made up this solution um, of sodium, potassium, um, you know, different chloride, different fluids. And there was another guy by the name of Hamburger. Truly, his name was Hamburger. He's the guy that made up normal saline. Does anybody know how normal saline was figured out? Like, why do you call it normal? Why don't you call it abnormal? Like, where'd that come from, normal? Well, Hamburger was in his lab in the 18-whatevers, and uh, need, we need this fluid because all these people are dying of hypovolemic shock uh, from cholera. They're just, you know, dumping out all their fluids. He uh, took a little dish, and he had water in it, and we know that water is hypotonic, so if we just give water to the body, our red blood cells will blow up because we've kind of enclosed the sea in our body. And so he sat there and he dropped sodium into the water. He's trying to get it like exactly what the blood is. So he put some blood cells in there and it's just water and he looked under the microscope and the red blood cells swelled up, blew up, and are dead. So then he added a little bit of salt. Then he added a little bit more. Then he added a little bit more. Then he added too much and the red blood cells went and they crunched up. So they're either swelling up and blowing up or crunched up and they're dead. So he finally got titrated to just the right amount and it was 0.9% normal saline. Okay? And what's the biggest medication that you guys use on a daily basis for your patients? Normal saline. Okay. So, and you guys know the indications, contraindications, what you're given, right? Uh-huh. Okay. Um, what's in normal saline? Exactly. 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 How much sodium? How much? 0.9% Okay. So what you're saying is there's 153 milliequivalents of sodium and 153 milliequivalents of chloride. Okay. <laughs> Lactated ringers gets even more difficult because there's all sorts of things in lactated ringers. So I would encourage you to take a look at the label so you know what you're giving. 
And that's kind of one of my classic things for medical students or for interns. They come in and they're all nervous, you know, and then they give somebody some IV fluid. And I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Do you know what you're giving? They're like, oh, yeah, IV fluid. It's like, no, exactly. What are you giving? <laughs> you know, and then we kind of go into 153 milliequivalents. Yeah. Did you provide a uh, fifth grader's explanation of milliequivalent? Uh, no, that would be a... <laughs> That'd be a 30-minute lecture. Okay. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's at least a level. yeah, it's yeah, it's it's six to seventh, <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah, it it's that's a hard one. I'd have to like draw it out for you. It's a little more of a math things, but yeah, but it's basically you can say milligrams, but it's equivalence to the amount of fluid that it's in. Yeah, so so we know that. Um, this cholerist thing came on, and we now have fluid, um, uh, either sodium chloride or lactator ringers. And there's actually been a debate lately about what is the best fluid for a patient. What do you think the best fluid for a head injured patient is? Hypertonic. Okay, TXA plus or minus actually, but that's not a fluid. That's a drug. But so if you lactator ringers versus normal saline, normal saline is a better fluid because it's got sodium in it and at least you have a little bit more sodium than the 135 milliequivalents in lactated ringers and so you're trying to shrink the brain because water loves salt so water is going to leave the interstitial uh, area of the brain and go into the intravascular system okay and that's why we give three percent hypertonic saline because it shrinks the brain um, but in all other uh, instances it can lead, normal saline can potentially lead to some sort of um, acute kidney injury or, or problems with the kidneys over time. Most of the time, it doesn't matter. Um, as long as it's wet, it's fine. But there are just some very fine-tuned things that we do in the ICU that we will change the, the fluids up. Yeah, you had a question. Oh, I was just looking to, for the first grade explanation of lactated ringers, but then I found what a lactated ringer's chemical breakdown is. So, what is it? Like you said, a lot of things. It says 130 to 131 MEQs of sodium, 109 to 111 MEQs Clark. of chloride, 28 to 29 of lactate, 4 to 5 of potassium, and 2 to 3 of calcium. Mm -hmm. so make a note card for that, huh? Yeah. So you know. Well, we don't give that very fluid years ago. We didn't have normal saline on the rigs. We only had lactated ringers or D5 for mixing meds with. But it was our it was our primary fluid for years, and I think wasn't the reason we changed from it because of the lactate that was in there. They felt like that offered more lactate towards an already acidotic. Patient. Yeah, and that's that's wrong. So it was the it was the internists who missed the lecture that the surgeons went to about how lactate is uh, metabolized in the body, and so it doesn't add any increased lactate load. Same thing with the potassium. Always like, hey, they're gonna, they're in shock. Their kidneys are shutting down. You're giving them potassium. It's like, no, you can't give them enough potassium even with multiple uh, liters. Yeah. So, uh, and then the other area where you don't want to give uh, saline on the other side is uh, burns. And so, what happens when you give a whole bunch of normal saline is you're giving 
153 milliequivalents of sodium and 153 milliequivalents of chloride. Well, the serum level of sodium is around 135 to 145. So we're pretty close to what the, the body needs, right? Little bit above, but we're pretty darn close. Chloride's a different thing. Chloride's more like 110 and you're given 153, so you get what's called a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. So in other words, you're giving a treatment that produces acidosis. And it's like, wait a minute, pretty much swimming backwards here. It's kind of crazy. So, but that's when you're giving multiple bags of fluid. And how much fluid uh, on a single patient would you guys ever give in the field? Two. Okay. And is it because your transport time's short? Our protocol limit does uh, two bags for a, like a normal patient and one bag for a trauma patient. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, we'll go over the reasons for that. But, you know, most patients, they don't need any more than two liters of fluid. So that's a good thing to know. Um, so the pipes are either not, there's not enough water or they're floppy or leaky. They're leaking out. Um, with the pump, either the pump's not working um, or it's clogged or compressed. What kind of shock would be a clogged or compressed pump? Give me an example. Tamponade. Tamponade's one, cardiac tamponade. What's the other one? Not myocardial infarction. Tension pneumo. It's compressed. It's squishing down on the heart. You can't fill the heart. Your stroke volume goes to zero, heart rate goes crazy high, and you just need to release the pressure. What about the clog? Would that be like the AMI and the... Wouldn't be the AMI. Uh, the AMI is a broken pump because acute coronary syndrome, you get a blood clot in the coronary artery that um, limits the amount of oxygen that can get to the cellular tissues. Those tissues die and your ability to contract your ejection fraction goes from you know, 70 down to 30, 20, and it's just, you got a broken pump. Yes, massive PE goes in, blocks the ability of blood to oxygenate, get to the heart, and then that causes uh, a pump problem. Nope, no question there. Okay. All right. So, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, because it's going to get better. It's hypovolemic. That's pretty easy to understand. There's just not enough fluid in the pipes. Floppy or leaky pipes, people that are third spacing, that's considered distributive shock. There's only four causes of shock, okay? And uh, again, we'll get, go over it and over it. Broken, broken pumps, um, pump can't pump out, that's cardiogenic shock. And then clogged or compressed, that's an obstructive shock state. That's a tension pneumothorax. That's a cardiac tamponade. That's a massive pulmonary embolism. So four types of shock. Hypovolemic and distributive as a pipe problem, cardiogenic and obstructive as a pump problem. When you break down the distributive, look, there's all sorts of ones. There's neurogenic shock, anaphylactic shock, septic shock, and we'll go through all of these. Uh, hypovolemic shock, hemorrhagic, and then fluid loss. And you probably see more fluid loss type shock 
then you see true hemorrhagic shock. Um, with cardiogenic, it can be a problem where heart rate's going too fast or too slow, or the pump itself has been damaged, um, or you've got some sort of mechanical issue with the valves and you can't get forward flow. So we'll go over those. So here's kind of in my mind when I picture the macro circulation and the micro circulation. And I said at the beginning that shock is a perfusion issue, okay? And we like to measure. We want to measure. It's like I need, I need, I'm in the back of the ambulance. I want to measure uh, their microcirculation, but there's no test to measure microcirculation. <coughs> How do you think we pick up on tissue perfusion issues? Cap refill. Okay. What else? Skin signs. What does the skin look like? Mentation. Mm -hmm. Mentation. Mm -hmm. Altered mental status. So skin signs like cool, clammy, diaphoretic. Mm -hmm. Macrocirculation. How do we pick up on that? Blood pressure. Yeah. So um, blood pressure is telling us about the pump. It's telling us about the cardiac output. We can check the heart rate and figure that out. Um, we can check the, the blood pressure, but it tells us nothing about this microcirculation. You could put entitled CO2 up there. You could put entitled CO2. How is that going to help you with uh, either your macrocirculation or your microcirculation? I think it, would, well, it tells you gas exchange on the microcirculation level, but also systemically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It uh, indirectly tells you about the microcirculation, but it definitely tells you about the macrocirculation. So think about uh, return of spontaneous circulation. You have an entitled CO2 of 8, and then suddenly you go to 42. You know that macrocirculation just kicked back in. Now you get them breathing again, and they're breathing 50 times a minute. Why are they breathing? And they've got a CO2 now of 68. You know indirectly that they have a big, huge buildup of that in the microcirculation. And so they're having perfusion. They're trying to offload that. That's why they're breathing so fast. Okay, so shock does not equal hypotension, but shock does equal hypoperfusion. And that's the way you have to think about it. Um, and there's no magic number uh, of the blood pressure. But like you said, there are indirect ways to look at perfusion. If they're altered, if their skin's cold and clammy, they're tachycardic, they're tachypnic, um, it's a perfusion problem. What do you think, out of all the things that we can measure, what do you think is the number one test that we can look at and go, like Gonzo would say, that there, that there is not good. Skin not skin signs. Mentation. Not mentation. Tachypnea, respiratory rate. If you're breathing 40 times a minute, that is not good. You're doing it for a reason, and you're offloading that CO2 because you have bad tissue perfusion, because you have anaerobic metabolism going on, trying to buffer your body, get back to homeostasis. All of those other things are true, but further down. But the number one thing to really look for is respiratory rate. And how many people in here count respiratory rate? 
Well, you know, I'll be truthful. I'll be truthful. I do count respiratory rates when it matters, but I don't always count respiratory rates. So if I had to write down what's the respiratory rate, I would, I would say either it's normal or if it's abnormal, it's too fast or too slow, then I say to myself, oh, too fast? I better count to see exactly where we're at and you know, to get a baseline. But if it's a normal person that broke their ankle, you know, I don't care. It's like normal. But you got to put a number down. So 16, pick one. 16, 14, 18. You know, they're a little anxious. Okay, I'm going to bump it up to 18. I got to mark the box. So, you know. So I didn't. Uh, is this recorded? Oh, shit. Um, <laughs> but, but when it really counts, you do need to do it. You need to take your hand, put it on the chest, maybe expose the chest so you can see the breathing and actually count it. All right, so the question you're going to be asking yourself is why is my patient not perfusing well? And we know that there's only four categories of shock. We know about blood pressure as a product of cardiac output and systemic vascular resistance. So we're going to be asking ourselves what's going on with cardiac output, what's going on with the systemic vascular resistance, and put it in terms that our eyes, ears, uh, uh, nose can figure out. So what affects blood pressure? The autonomic nervous system sure affects it. Contractility, the heart, preload, afterload, all of those play a role. This is a picture when I was down doing uh, 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 final paramedic evals in Seattle. A guy uh, drove a metro bus. He was trapped there for like 45 minutes, squished himself. Apparently these poles, this is down at 3rd and Spring Street, are uh, pretty darn sturdy. This was a, you know, a double-decker bus. This Just was, squished them. This was only like a month or two ago, right? Yeah. Yeah, I got a picture from a buddy that was on that call. Oh, did you? Yeah. yeah. There it is. And there, here's my two students here. This, this guy here, he's uh, going to be a new paramedic on Orcas Island, and she's uh, South King County. All right. So changes in afterload and preload. We need to kind of know about that, again, to understand these equations, equations. So you have increased peripheral vasoconstriction. That increases your peripheral or systemic vascular resistance, however you want to say it, SVR, PVR. Um, it increases uh, that. Uh, and that increases your afterload. And you can see that. You, know, you kind of squeeze the pipes down flow, and the pressure is going to rise up near the heart, right? And it's going to be a little bit harder to get that blood out if the pressure, if there's more pressure, right? So the heart's going to have to squeeze harder to get that blood out if there's afterload on that heart. Does that make sense? Okay. So by squeezing those blood vessels, you inc increase the blood pressure. And when you're 20 years old and the pager pops off at 3 o'clock in the morning and you jump out of bed and you run out to the apparatus your body can do it like that. But when you're 70 years old, I wouldn't do it. And how many times do you go to a ground level fall or a syncopal episode at six in the morning, five in the morning when they get up to go to the bathroom and they jump out of bed thinking from, from here up they're 25, from here down they're like 90. And, and they, can't, they don't have that vasomotor reactivity and they can't, their heart can't compensate and they go down. So, if you dilate, you decrease your peripheral vascular resistance, you decrease your afterload, 
and your blood pressure drops as well. Okay, so you lose your pressure head, basically. And I used to, uh, I've got two antique fire engines. I got a 1953 American LaFrance open cab fire truck, and I just got a 1934 Seagraves fire truck from District 7 Firefighter Association. Got it running for the first time in four years, like in two days. Got it up and running. And uh, when you look at the pump, pump dynamics, it's it's the same thing as a fire engine. It's pump dynamics, exact same uh, principles. So uh, if you increase your fluid volume, you increase your preload, right? When you increase your preload um, and stretch your heart, your body, your heart, likes that. And it will respond with love, and it will contract more vigorously. So that's a nice principle to know. What's that principle called? Starling's Law. It's written, written right up there. Good job. <laughs> and uh, increase, uh, increases your heart rate. <coughs> okay, and blood pressure goes up. If your fluid volume's low, preload goes down. You don't get the stretch. Uh, and there is a point where you get on the curve, Starling's Law, where you can put as much fluid in there, and once you stretch it to its limit, it's not going to contract more vigorously. And that's basically like your acute pulmonary edema, you know, where it just can't, and then it just backs up and it goes into your lungs, and you get to see them at 5 o'clock in the morning with pink stuff coming out of their mouth. And, yeah. Sterling's Law mostly impact the atria? Ventricles. Mostly the ventricles. Yeah, and really the left ventricle. The right ventricle is basically a conduit. It's a parking lot for blood as it's coming in, mm -hmm. and it holds on there. And it's the left ventricle. That's really the pump of the heart. So uh, with decreased preload comes decreased blood pressure. And these are important when we go over to this table over here. All right. Now we should talk a little bit about the fluid, the blood, the red stuff. Uh, it has plasma proteins. Um, there's about... It's made up about 45% red blood cells, also has platelets in it, and it has clotting factors. And what we've learned when we give people blood, uh, and I just did it uh, the other day, I gave this guy red blood cells, only red blood cells, because he was in shock, and I wanted to give him fluid, but the best fluid is blood. And the best blood is whole blood, which has all of these things in it. Plasma proteins, red blood cells, platelets, and clotting factors. And as we lose any one of those, we have a host of problems. Now, you, can, you have the whole blood, but in the hospital you have your packed red blood cells. You have your cryoprecipitate clotting factors. You have your fresh frozen plasma. And then you have your platelet packs. And in trauma resuscitation... We basically try to give one-to-one-to-one, to one to one, uh, so we try to equate whole blood. And, of course, they're all cold, and we're making the patient colder by giving it to them. And uh, so hypothermia becomes a huge issue. But we need to give intravascular volume. If you talk to a trauma surgeon, they'll tell you that uh, crystalloids, clear fluids, is essentially poison for the trauma patient. It's absolute poison. So if you put that concept in your mind and you're kind of moving slow on scene. It's like, oh, yeah, no problem. I'll fix this patient up. Gonzo says, I'm put a couple big, huge IVs in him, give him a couple bags of fluid, 
and sit here and we'll see if he gets better. That patient is getting the wrong treatment. You're trying to increase the preload to increase the blood pressure to help the perfusion process so you don't go down that rabbit hole of metabolic acidosis, but at the same time, they really need the red stuff. So that's important to know. How long do you get on scene with a trauma patient that's hypotensive? 10 minutes. What about a septic patient that's hypotensive? Yeah, 10 minutes. You gotta move. Move with a purpose, you've heard that. Uh, recruit training, move with a purpose. So that's what you gotta do. So there are natural things that are going on in the body to kind of bring you back to homeostasis. And I don't think you've probably ever heard of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. You guys heard of that, the RAS? Perfect. So it's, balance, it's trying to keep the fluid in the body. It's happening all the time. It's happening on all your medical patients. It's happening in your trauma patients. It's happening in everybody. And when it kind of goes awry, then we have to, we've designed drugs to, to affect that you know, both ways. So what happens when the body senses that you have a decreased plasma volume or a decreased sodium level, it's detected by your juxtaglomerular apparatus, your little glomeruli in your kidneys, and the kidney senses that and goes, whoa, 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 hey, we don't have enough fluid. Sends messages to the adrenal glands, sends messages out. Hey, gets their buddy Renin. Hey, Renin, get out there. Would you tell them we don't have enough fluid? So Renin goes out there, and it converts an angiotensinogen to angiotensin-1. Great. And then you have this enzyme called ACE, angiotensin-converting enzyme, and it converts it into angiotensin-2, which is the molecule that's actually out there doing the, doing the deeds. Now, is there a pharmacological thing, like if this is happening too much? ACE inhibitors. That's right. ACE inhibitors. And basically, coronavirus, which is a vasculophilic virus, which means it likes the vascular system. It causes strokes, causes heart attacks, causes renal failure, because the, the biggest amount of blood vessels you have are in your kidneys. It's packed. It's like an oil can. It's like an oil filter. It's just you know, packed with blood vessels. It goes in through these... <coughs> excuse me. Um, it goes through the... Uh, ACE2 receptor site into the endothelial cells of the blood vessels. That's how it really does its duty in the pulmonary system and then in the vascular system um, and causes all sorts of havoc. Um, and so you see the vascular complications. So this angiotensin II comes out. It causes vasoconstriction, natural vasoconstriction. It increases uh, your blood pressure by holding on to more fluid. Uh, what's happening with the afterload when angiotensin II comes out? Increases. So on, on the one side, it causes vasoconstriction, but it also will help with the preload. Okay, it, it activates the thirst mechanism. If you're feeling thirsty right now, you're already dehydrated. If you have to rely on your body to tell you to drink fluid, you're screwed, and bad things will happen to you. I'm a perfect example. I'm an ER doc. I'm running around. I don't have time to go to the bathroom. I don't have time to pee. i got to see patients, and so I don't drink a lot of water at work. 
and I end up, and I end up getting kidney stones, you know, because of it. And so, you know, by the time my body says, hey, you know, you really should grab some water, and I'm like, yeah, 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 I'll get to it, I'll get to it. And I did that the other day. I had a 8 o'clock in the morning, I had a full glass of water, I drank half of it, set it down, and got back to it at 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> no meals, no nothing, just full on, you know, people having major problems. So, um, so thirst increases your fluid vomit. Volume it makes you drink fluids. Um, and then it also affects this hormone called antidiuretic hormone. And this is a great hormone. Um, you can inhibit this hormone by drinking alcohol. Did you know that? When you drink alcohol, do you pee more? Yeah. And you get dehydrated, right? Because alcohol inhibits antidiuretic hormone. So antidiuretic hormone goes down to the kidneys and say, hey, we need to hold on to this water because we've got a volume issue. Um, so that's basically increases your fluid volume. Then it goes down to the adrenal cortex and releases aldosterone. And aldosterone goes out there and says to the kidneys and everywhere else, it's like, hey, we got a volume problem. We know that sodium and water are having a thing. We need to kind of keep them here. Uh, to increase the intravascular pressure, and so it increases water absorption, attracts water, keeps water in the body. Now, if you had hypertension, you might not want to have aldosterone working. You might not want to have angiotensin II working. And so there's ACE inhibitors and there's uh, ARBs, uh, angiotensin receptor blockers, um, and so we use those for people that are hypertensive already, people that already have a baseline elevated systemic vascular resistance. Okay, now we're moving on to hemostasis. Um, what kind of, uh, if this was like pouring out blood, what would you do to this wound? Put pressure on it, direct pressure, still bleeding. What are you gonna do? Okay, it's a belly actually, it's a belly wound. Um, Whoops, let's go backwards. Um, pack it, pack it, pack it, pack it, pack it. You got a big wound, shove something in there. Like a gauze. Gauze, and uh, combat gauze, if you got it. The <clears throat> and we'll go over the, the whole hemostatic agents. Uh, but you, you guys already know how to stop bleeding, because if you, if you didn't get that as an EMT, you shouldn't even be, you guys are the experts at stopping bleeding, right? Yeah. And the idea with packages, I've, I've seen videos Yeah, it's really kind of poor form to put like a big, huge ace wrap around the neck. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just want to try to, a lo local pressure there. Yeah. yeah. And that's key. So the body, what it's going to do is it's going to try to constrict those blood vessels. Uh, and so the best way to commit suicide is not to cut your wrist like this. It's better to cut down longitudinally along the blood vessel because it constricts from the end, and it can't do that, so you can bleed out a lot easier. So uh, you've got vascular constriction. You've got a platelet plug formation. That's fibrin, net, and platelet plugs, uh, and then you've got your coagulation factors. So all three of these things are, are working in unison to stop bleeding. And you've got these coagulation factors that kind of are activated. You've got some sort of defect in a blood vessel. Von Willebrand's factor kind of kicks in. And I won't go through the intrinsic and extrinsic 
clotting cascades and all that stuff because who cares? All you really kind of want to know is the end product, which is this mesh of fibrin that occurs. Fibrinogen turns to fibrin. It's this net that's catching all these blood cells and platelets and uh, makes a platelet plug, makes a, makes a clot. And in medicine, we have problems on both sides. Clots are bad in certain places, like in the brain, in the blood vessels. But if you open up an artery, you need a clot to stop the bleeding. Um, and if these things are not working correctly, you're screwed. So that's, yeah, literally you're screwed. You're, you're going to bleed to death. So once you kind of use up all your clotting factors, your body, again, is clotting and unclotting all the time. And it's a teeter-totter. And when one goes, uh, you know, too much and you're not clotting, you bleed all over the place. And when the other factors are too much, you, um, you clot and you have a massive PE or something. What do you think some disease states that would make it very easy for you to clot your blood? Just general disease states. Shock states can do that. The biggest one um, that I look for in my quick focus history, cancer. Cancer makes your blood clot. So if you got a person with a history of colon cancer that suddenly uh, can't breathe, think PE. Okay, look at their legs. Start a asking those questions. Now what about the, like, the triad of the smokers on birth control? That can in increase your, yeah, that can cause problems. I've definitely seen that before. And it's together. Now the birth controls have changed quite a bit, but I saw literally three cases of that at a concert in Pittsburgh. Uh, it was like an all-day concert, and they were out there jumping around, and they were doing the birth control, and they were smokers, and they hit a clot three in one day. Three massive PEs in young women, like under the age of 30. It's unbelievable. Yeah. So you're saying any, or any cancer, if we see it on their history, you just think they're likely to... Cancer makes your blood thick. That's what your brain should say. Cancer makes your blood thick. We have to consider... Yeah, because what we do is we develop a differential diagnosis. What are the possible things going on, right? When people call 911, they want you to come out and say, hey, what do you think's going on? And you're building that differential diagnosis based on what you're seeing, um, what you're hearing, and the data that you collect. And so that can be a, an issue. So with a fibrinolysis, um, plasminogen is converted to plasmin. Plasmin eats that fibrin eats that net so there's no net for all the blood cells to kind of clog onto and um, make a blood clot. Are there any drugs that promote plasminogen to plasmin? Yeah. Oh, promote plasminogen to plasmin. I'm sorry, I was thinking the opposite. Like stop, that inhibit the eating of the net. Yeah. Like that's the TXA, right? That's the TXA. So the TXA says I'm going to protect, uh, I'm not going to let plasminogen go to plasmin. And there's like a video cartoon out there about like a dog which is plasmin and plasminogen and you know you let the dogs out and they eat the net. Um, but yeah, so TPA or the thrombolytics, TNK, uh, tissue plasminogen activator, those are the things that activate plasminogen and naturally we have TPA in our body. Okay, it's there. And so there's a 
very tight control of this, you know, it's a teeter-totter. Yeah. And TPA for structure. Yeah, TPA will break those clots down. And so TPA for pulmonary embolism, massive pulmonary embolism, TPA for strokes, TPA for heart attacks, basically TPA for a clot that is not doing you well. Yeah. So TXA on one side, TPA on the other. You can kind of get that. <clears throat> all right. And then when everything's all used up, you can kind of go into this overwhelming uh, cascade of you're using up all your complements, all of your factors, and you're clotting and unclotting at the same time, but at a very rapid rate. And it uses up all of your, um, all of your proteins uh, and gives you these microemboli everywhere, and you go into multi-system organ failure. And the way you tell that is you go to start an IV, and it's blood's leaking around the IV, and you know blood's leaking out of their eyes. The, their urine is not yellow; it's red. I mean, they're just they bleed from everywhere. So it's basically an uncontrolled acceleration of clotting cascades, small vessel occlusions in the brain, in the liver, in the lungs, in the kidneys, and all of those organs fail because of that. Um, I got a uh, Bellingham Fire picture here. Uh, this was actually a cardiac arrest, uh, up, I think up by Grandview. So, uh, so the body's response, it has kind of like damage control centers in the brain. You got your baroreceptor reflexes up here in your carotids, and they're checking on the volume, like the pipes, we're checking the pipes. And then you have your chemoreceptor reflexes. That senses the hydrogen ion. So they got their office up in the brain and also in the blood vessels, measuring exactly how many um, hydrogen ions are going by. And there's also other chemoreceptors in the brain for carbon dioxide. And, and then it sends messages to your brainstem to increase your respiratory rate. They, can, they have their little dial. Um, and then if they're sensing some bad things going on, they'll send messages to the adrenal gland. And where's the adrenal gland located? On top of the kidney. So did you, do you know why epinephrine is called epinephrine? That's right. It's, epi means above in Greek or Latin, something like that. And nephron, nef is kidney. So above the kidneys, epinephrine. And nor, epinephrine, nor, I think it means new or means use first. <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, epinephrine. It sends out. So there are uh, multiple stress hormones. And this was always a test question in medical school. Always test question. And I finally, I made a mnemonic. And when somebody's in shock, they need an ECG, right? They need to be on a heart monitor. So ECGG are the stress hormones. E, epinephrine. C, cortisol, also comes from the adrenal gland. G, glucagon. And the other G is growth hormone. So those are the four chemicals that shower out 10 times what they should be when your body's in shock. So your adrenal gland is just squishing. Yeah, ECGG. 
So epinephrine, what epinephrine does is it goes to the heart. It's an alpha-1, alpha-2, beta-1, beta-2 receptor hits everything. Goes to the heart, the beta-1 receptors. It has an agonist effect. In other words, a positive effect. Makes your heart rate go up, right? When the heart rate goes up, what does your cardiac output do? It increases, right? Um, and then uh, it goes to the liver. And remember the two things that you need in life, oxygen and glucose, right? Because that's where the metabolism, the mitochondria is powerhouse making all that ATP. It goes in and it does something called gluconeogenesis. It makes new glucose. So if you've got glucose cruising around and then there's an emergency and all the glucose is used up, the stress hormones release more glucose by cleaving glycogen. Glycogen is two glucose molecules in its storage form. And if you've ever seen Fruit Ninja, right, where you, whoosh, you cut it, that's the first thing I think of. It's like, oh, we've got a Fruit Ninja problem here. And, <laughs> and the glucose level goes up. And uh, uh, glucagon does the same thing. So there's two chemicals now trying to get as much reserve out of your liver and into your system to give you the best support possible. <clears throat> so, so you've got those vasoconstrictors working. You're trying to hold on to more water with the RAS. Uh, you're trying to drink water. Um, you're redistributing blood flow away from organs that don't need it, especially the biggest organ in your body, which is the skin. That's why you get the skin signs. Okay, What's the next organ after the skin that gets shut down? GI. So hear me now and thank me later. Always have your suction unit with you. I say that because I've made the mistake of having the suction unit in the ambulance and somebody puking and dying and somebody's got to run out and it just it's a mess. Always have your suction unit with you. All trauma patients have full stomachs. The stomach um, secretes five liters of gastric juice a day. When you have trauma, when you have shock, the stomach stops peristalsis, okay? But the pumps in the stomach don't stop. They're still pumping out fluids. So their stomach will get bigger, 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 and then they'll puke. At some point, a sick patient's gonna puke on you, and that's the reason, is because that blood flow is no longer going to the GI tract. And then after the GI tract, it's the kidneys. Okay, and so we can use skin signs, that's helpful to see, um, but we definitely use urine output, how much urine you're getting out to measure your perfusion. So it'll have increased respiratory rate to get rid of the CO2, basically buffered hydrogen ion. You'll have re redistribution of blood flow and then you'll have decreased urinary output. So those are the signs that you're looking for. Mm -hmm. uh, is that just a, something that you do as a doctor, like give epi, you uh, give cortisol, glucagon, and growth hormone to help with reducing a patient's shock? No, no, no. I'm just saying that that's what your body's doing. Oh. Now, do we use steroids? Yeah, in certain clinical situations. Um, do we 
use vasopressors like epinephrine and norepinephrine? Do we augment what the body's already doing? Yeah, when uh, we find that the body is unable to compensate. So, you know, you get shot. It's like kind of on TV. You know, somebody gets shot four times and they're just kind of trotting away. It's like they're really good. Their adrenal gland is like super big. <laughs> and you know, they compensate on their own. But, you know, another person gets like a BB shot and they're down and they're in decompensated shock and they need some extra adrenal gland squeeze externally with some norepi or epi. Yeah. So it's kind of what your body's doing, but you can't kind of like swip and say, oh, that's our treatment, then we'll give that. It's a little bit more complex than that. <clears throat> so this is your, your sympathoadrenal response, sympathetic nervous system to the adrenal gland. Your blood pressure's low. Baroreceptors figure it out. Chemoreceptors figure it out. Your pulse pressure is low. Baroreceptors figure that out. Go to the vasomotor center in your brainstem and says, hey, we need to fix this. And sends messages to the adrenal gland. Boom. You get your stress hormones coming out. And it vasoconstricts. That increases your heart rate. It increases your contractility. We've all been there at some point where you felt your heart just beating out of your chest. It's either um, first time you're with a really good-looking woman and you're 16, you know, um, the butterflies in your chest, remember that? Or somebody scares the bejesus out of you. Or you're watching some little video and then it's like, ah! you know, and your heart, you can just feel your heart just, and it's just <clears throat> like microsecond of excess uh, vasopressor and your heart just contracts. Um, so we felt it. It happens. Um, it decreases your venous capacitance. It kind of reduces that level because that's about 47% of your blood volume. And it increases your venous return. <coughs> so that maintains your cardiac output. It maintains your blood, blood vessels. Um, at the same time, uh, the RAS system is dealing with the volume because you can pump it around, great, but if you don't have the volume, you need them both. So that's why the body's built that way. All right, so we've talked a little bit about uh, inadequate perfusion, uh, inadequate pump, inadequate preload, poor contractility, excessive afterload, and fast or slow heart rates. That's the reason why you're going to have pump problems. And you can translate into all the different shock states uh, with, as far as pump goes. Same thing with pipes. Um, and so let's... Put this thing to, let's put this table together. This is the uh, clinical features of shock, which you already know these. I mean, you know that in a heartbeat, you wouldn't have a problem with that. Okay. So, understanding cardiac output is equal to heart rate times stroke volume, and blood pressure is cardiac output times systemic vascular resistance. What's going on with the heart rate and hemorrhagic shock? Okay. What's going on with the stroke volume and hemorrhagic shock? Decrease. Decrease. What's going on with systemic vascular resistance? Increase. Increase. I'll give it two arrows. What's going on with cardiac output? Decrease. Decrease, yeah. And what's the big component of that? Why is it decreasing? Stroke volume. Stroke volume, right. That's your limiting factor. And that's where your body, when you see that heart rate start going up, what you're saying in your mind is like, oh, look at that heart rate. It's 120. And then that second person in your brain going says, yeah, that's because they need fluid. They, their stroke volume's down. Septic patient, what's going on with your heart rate? Increase. 
What's going on with your stroke volume? Okay. What's going on with your stomach vascular resistance? Okay. What's going on with your cardiac output? It could be increased or decreased. So an early septic shock, warm shock, it actually increases. You get hyperdynamic, and that helps you. And then you fall into more of the cold shock, and it goes down. Okay. And same thing in burns, exactly the same thing. So I'll just skip burns because it's exactly the same. Heart rate goes up. Uh, stroke volume goes down. Systemic vascular resistance actually goes up. But you get a hypermetabolic phase, and then you peter out. What about anaphylactic? What happens there? Has anybody ever seen true anaphylactic shock? Have you? Okay. And tell us about it real quick. Uh, it was a gal sitting in an apartment. This is when I was working for Linden Till. And she had called, I think she had a food allergy. <clears throat> and by the time we got there, she was almost unresponsive. Throat was swelling, tongue was swelling. Couldn't get her blood pressure. We gave IM epi, packaged her medics got on scene, and they took her. Mm -hmm. And what did the epi do for? I don't quite remember. I, I recall she did get a little bit better in terms of like she was regaining a little bit of consciousness, but she was still pretty sick. Okay. Yeah. The epi. What the epi is going to do is it kind of prevents histamine from putting all those little holes, making the pipes leaky. And it also increases your systemic vascular resistance. So in anaphylaxis, your systemic vascular resistance is low, right? It's a distributive shock. Heart rate, of course, up. Stroke volume, down, losing fluid. And then cardiac output is also going to be depressed. Dehydration, what kind of shock is this? Hypovolemic, right. So what's going on with this one? Heart rate's up. Heart rate's up. Stroke volume's down. Up, big time. RAS system is like totally going. Aldosterone's out there. Angiotensin II's out there. It's trying to hold on to as much fluid as possible. And cardiac output is down because of stroke volume. Cardiogenic. What's happening with heart rate on cardiogenic shock? That's right. That's one of those, it depends. Which in medicine, and when you're dealing with your wife, like with a complex question, the answer is always, well, and you got to say it with a southern drawl, well, it depends. <laughs> it depends. <laughs> so sometimes that's the right answer. Um, so stroke volume, what's going on with cardiogenic shock stroke volume? Okay, or maybe none at all. Maybe it may be up because the pump failure is backing up, but it could be normal to up. Systemic vascular resistance, it's going to be, that's its compensation, right? And then cardiac output, big time down. That's a pump failure. Tamponade, same thing with cardiogenic, it's obstructive. So pump issues, you're going to have issues with the heart rate with your stroke volume. With um, distributive type shocks, you're going to have problems with your systemic vascular resistance. What type of shock state 
will give you a normal heart rate. Neurogenic. Neurogenic shock. And how do you remember that? This is how I remember it. 60-60 shock. Somebody's got a blood pressure of 60, and they got a heart rate of 60. Now, remember Gonzo, and Gonzo says, and that blood pressure and that heart rate meet up. We got ourselves a problem, and that's neurogenic shock, and it's because you've lost your innervation to those uh, vessels. You've lost your systemic vascular resistance, but you've also lost your neurally mediated component of heart rate, so that's a problem. All right, so you know that the most important sign to identify metabolic acidosis and hypoxia is tachypnea. So the number one symptom you're looking for is how fast are they breathing. Best way, what's your best, your usual, and this is kind of what I'll tell my residents, your usual and customary. Your, what's your usual and customary approach to evaluating rapid breathing? Yeah, if they're talking like we're talking right now, they have no problems. But if they're talking to you like this, there's a problem. And so if they can talk fine, great. You know, I'm not interested in their respiratory rate, but if they're working hard to breathe, and sometimes you actually, they're not talking at all, and you actually have to expose the chest and look at their tidal volume, how much they're getting in, and the rate. Tidal volume and rate are key. That gives you what's called the minute ventilation. That's what you want to know. All right, so increased sympathetic tone, increased uh, inadequate tissue perfusion. Um, that's huge. So we know some of the compensations are uh, uh, defense mechanisms. We'll get tachycardic, decreased skin perfusion, altered mental status, and that kind of brings us through the different stages of shock. As we move from the inciting event through compensation to the edge of that cliff before we're going to fall off. We're going to be looking at that. This person was somebody from the county, it was District 1, who said somebody came up to his door like 8 in the morning and stabbed him in the abdomen. <clears throat> and it turned out he actually did it to himself. <laughs> and, and it was only in like this far. In fact, when I took the dressing off, the whole knife fell out. It's like, oh, it was... I had a really great patient, and then it's like, oh, this is just, this is a psych patient. <laughs> so, <laughs> you never know. Um, so compensation, physiologic mechanisms, you know the physiologic mechanisms now, the RAS system, uh, the, the vasoconstrictors. Um, once you uh, begin to fail those, you go into decompensated shock, and then once you're in refractory shock, you've got organ failure, uh, you've got hypothermia, your clotting cascade fails, uh, you got severe metabolic acidosis, you're screwed. Okay. Oops. All right. So here's uncompensated shock. Um, that's when you see hypotension, prolonged cap refill, increased heart rate, rapid thready pulse. That's your pulse pressure, systolic pressure minus diastolic pressure. And then another, uh, the next most sensitive thing for hypoxia and hypotension after your respiratory rate is your mental status. That is huge. So when your patient is agitated, that's where you should go. You should just say to yourself, agitation equals 
we're in a shock state. Now, they might be a behavioral health patient or something like that, but behavioral health patients have problems too. But you should be moving your um, thinking process to, um, to that. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, this, uh, there's like two liters of blood in this uh, um, uh, chest drainage kit. This is actually my brother. He's uh, 10 years younger than I am, and he had three cardiac arrests in one month due to atrial flutter with one-to-one -one conduction and his heart rate beating 300 times a minute. And so it would kick off, and he dropped dead because when your heart's beating 300 times a minute, how quickly can you fill your heart? So you had a problem with stroke volume. The first time, paramedics shocked him. It's all good. Second time, they did like 10 minutes of very aggressive CPR, which is awesome because he's completely fully intact, but broke every rib in his body and a sternum and gave him a bilateral hemothorax. <laughs> and then the third time, uh, he was actually in uh, an urgent care told them, hey, I've died twice this month. I'm about ready to have a cardiac arrest. And, and the place was full. And they're like, well, why don't you go ahead and have a seat? He's like, you don't understand. So his wife went like mama bear on him. And they put him in like one of these hall chairs. And he proceeded to have a cardiac arrest. Scared the living shit out of him. It's awesome. I actually went down and talked to the ER doctor. It's like, hey, next time somebody comes in, says they had two cardiac arrests and they're about to have another one, you better listen to them. <laughs> And that's, that's wise wisdom for you guys, right? If somebody says, I think I'm about to die, that's not a good sign. <clears throat> so refractory shock, uh, organs are, are failing, and there's not much you can do. You're going to end up in the toilet. Um, when we're looking at different things like what could be on a test, uh, signs of stages of shock are one of them. Uh, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about hemorrhagic shock as potential test questions. So hypovolemic, cardiogenic, obstructive, and distributive shocks, those are your four shock states, and then you can break some down um, with the different types of shock. Now here's a guy with just, he just has a sliver, and, <laughs> and uh, when I learned about shock back in 1979 when I took my EMT class, uh, there was psychogenic shock was on the list. I had to memorize psychogenic shock because, you know, you see something like that, you can lose your mind. Uh, but a hypovolemic shock, it's a fluid failure. Um, and it can be caused by GI bleeds, uh, uh, some sort of uterine bleeding, uh, ovarian cyst rupture can dump a bunch of uh, blood in your um, belly. It could be an ectopic pregnancy, abdominal aortic aneurysm. All of those things can lead to hypovolemic shock. It's not just look at all that blood on the street or in the house. A lot of times it's not the actual you know, major trauma patient. It's something else. Uh, vomiting and diarrhea is another one. Pancreatitis is huge as far as hypovolemic shock. They require lots of fluids. And then, of course, burns is another distributive. Yeah? And what's the physiology of that with pancreatitis? Pancreatitis... What happens is <clears throat> kind of the classic one is gallstone pancreatitis where a stone kind of comes down the common bile duct, kind of meets where the pancreatic duct comes out, and uh, it backs up the enzymes that coming from the pancreas, and it dissolves the pancreas, and you get what's called third spacing. So you get this massive pseudocyst, and it just dumps all your fluid into that. 
So the ones that are just sneaky is that's sneaky. <clears throat> the diarrhea patients are sneaky because, you know, if somebody cuts their artery and you can see the blood coming out, you got this visual, you know, it said, look, there's 200 cc's, there's 500 cc's, there's a liter. And the diarrhea patient is sitting there looking at you. It's like, I don't feel very good. But you can't see inside the bowel is like getting bigger and bigger and bigger, filling with fluid until they just suddenly eject all of it all over you. And I, if you've ever been on the wrong end of a, G, a GI bleed, and I have, or they crap all over your ambulance, or they, you know, their entire, you know, a liter comes out of their mouth of, of digested blood all over your ambulance, it's not fun. It's the worst smell in the world. Yeah. And with pancreatitis, can you talk a little bit about uh, common history with these patients and then presentation? Yeah, uh, well, they can just present in shock. Uh, a lot of pancreatitis, it can be uh, alcoholics. So kind of alcohol will burn the pancreas out. Uh, they can uh, present with uh, a band-like abdom severe abdominal pain, colicky type abdominal pain, and that's your gallstone pancreatitis. You can get it from different medications, all sorts of different things. You can get it from elevated triglycerides, um, and sometimes the clue to that is you'll have these kind of yellow plaques around the eyes. You know, you'll have plaques in here and, and kind of little nodules, and that's actually triglycerides and cholesterol that have um, deposited in the skin because it's so high. Have you guys ever seen that? Start looking at people's eyes. The uh, term for that, if you're trying to mess with your fellow medic or veteran medics, is xanthalasma. <clears throat> so you can, like... In your final vows, you're like, <clears throat> well, this patient looks like they got some xanthalasma, so I'm kind of concerned about acute coronary syndrome because the cholesterol's up. But, of course, you already knew that because they're on Crestor or Lipitor. But, uh, you know, so we're going to do an EKG. That's why I tell you what. <clears throat> and uh, <laughs> fail. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so there's, there's multiple things that can cause pancreatitis, but at its end stage, it's a hypovolemic shock state. So um, most people, when you go to advanced trauma life support, pre-hospital trauma life support, they say, memorize this table. And again, I am not really good at memorizing. I'm good at kind of putting the concepts together for the long term, because at some point, your brain's going to forget these things. It's going to be pushed out by something new. But you know, uh, when you think about class one shock, class one shock is when you go and you donate blood. That's what it is, class one shock. So um, they take about 750 mLs or 500 mLs out of you. Uh, your pulse may go up just a little bit. Uh, they give you orange juice, though. They give you some crackers. They give you orange juice. Uh, they give you some fluids. Capillary refill is usually maintained. Respiratory rate really doesn't change. Um, your urine output's fine. And when you get to stage two shock, that's kind of the sneaky one. And your heart rate's definitely up, uh, but your blood pressure's normal. And those are the ones that you gotta watch for. Gotta watch for changes in skin signs. You gotta do those reevaluations, changes in mental status. They might be mildly anxious. So if you're worried about a hemorrhagic type shock situation or hypovolemic type shock situation, and you got a mildly anxious patient, think about you're on the continuum. Yeah. When you say blood pressure's normal, but then pulse pressure is down, are you referring to systolic blood pressure as normal? 
Well, pulse pressure is systolic minus diastolic. Yep. So as the remember the body is trying to compensate, it's always trying to get the back to that that teeter totter that's you know even. Um, so it's out there. It's got some of the vasopressors working to increase your systemic vascular resistance. But your blood pressure, that's why blood pressure does not equal shock. It, it's, it's about perfusion. Um, your blood pressure will remain normal. And kids will do this all the time. Kids will go along and they'll just kind of race towards the cliff and then just jump off. And that's why you hear, you know, kids will look fine, 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 and then suddenly die on you. That's what they do because they, they'll maintain everything and the blood pressure will be fine. I guess my confusion is that if your pulse pressure is down, that means that your systolic and diastolic are encroaching. So then how could that be normal? Well, the, so the pulse, your blood pressure itself, though, you won't be, l like, less than 90 is basically what I'm saying. Okay. So you won't, you won't be hypotensive by our criteria, but your pulse pressure will be changing. So um, an EMT would look at a blood pressure and go, oh, yeah, uh, hey, this person's got a blood pressure... 104 palp, you can code green, and you're like, uh, oh God, why don't you give me the full set of vital signs? <laughs> you know, what's the skin color? It's like, well, yeah, the blood pressure is 104 uh, over 40, and, you know, and they're pale and sweaty, and uh, yeah. yeah, oh, and their heart rate's 130. <laughs> but I just thought they were nervous, or I thought they were on meth, or I was whatever the bias, yeah, you know. Yeah, so, but your job is to delve in and really figure out what's going on with those vital signs. Again, with the backdrop of the physiology. So class three, of course, now you've got some signs. Now they're starting to look shocky. And if you can't figure it out by class four, where they've lost two liters of blood, you shouldn't be doing this job. Because my kids can figure that out and they have no, no idea. So confused, lethargic, uh, respiratory rate's crazy. Uh, heart, our respiratory rate is 30 to 40 here. That's kind of your clue, right? Where here, it's somebody with a respiratory rate of 20. You know, if you breathe 20 times a minute, you kind of track yourself. You won't feel uncomfortable, but if you try to breathe 30 times a minute, you'll feel uncomfortable. And there's only so long you can maintain that respiratory rate. You're using ATP, all those muscles are working. You're gonna run out of energy. So the way to remember this for a for a test is, is it, anybody in here play tennis? Okay, so the way you score tennis is uh, it's 15, 30, 40. And so class one is love to 15, it's your first point. Uh, class two is you go from 15 to 30, that's your class two shock. Class three is 30 to 40. And then class four, you're over 40. It's basically match, set, dead. <laughs> right? So that's an easy way to kind of flip it over. 15 love, 30 love, 40 love, match, dead. Done. <clears throat> All right. Cardiogenic shock. Let's get into some of the shock states. Cardiogenic shock, you have a decreased cardiac output. You've got activation of your... Uh, renin-angiotensin system that goes crazy on you. It tries to increase your volume, your preload, try to stretch out your heart because your heart, it's a pump problem. Your heart's not contracting enough, so it's trying to give more fluid in there to contract it. That increases your myocardial oxygen demand, and if you already have pre-existing heart disease, that's not good. 
Uh, then you get more impaired myocardial function, decreases your cardiac output, and you again go into the spiral where you get more catecholamine release. It whips your heart faster. can't really fill as fast. Um, your systemic vascular resistance goes up. You get nice and cold and pale looking. Um, and you get peripheral edema uh, and pulmonary edema over time. And you basically are in this vicious cycle. And it's, those are the cardiogenic shock pulmonary edema patients. Has anybody seen a cardiogenic shock patient that survived? Uh, no, we saw one getting paced in the ED. OK. They yeah. They died. Who's the other one that had? Yeah? Uh, she ended up dying too. Okay. She had a bunch of stuff going on. Yeah. They're sick. Some, some do live, but, you know, it all depends on where you catch them. Once they go into that spiral, you know, it's, it's not a good thing. All right. So treatment options for cardiogenic shock. And we see a lot of these patients or patients, hopefully they call early enough, they're just starting to enter into this phase and you guys are able to... Um, figure this out. If they wait too long, then what are you paged out for? CPR. Yeah, cardiac arrest, CPR in progress, yeah, because the heart just stops. So we use vasopressors. We use TNK, uh, TPA, the thrombolytics to clear out any of the blood clots. Um, we use all sorts of blood thinners. Uh, heparin uh, uh, thins the blood, kind of knocks out one of the loops in the clotting cascade, or anoxaprine, probably heard of that. Lovenox, uh, it's a low molecular weight heparin. And it's, it's really, really important to know these classes of medications. And if I could just bring you out to the island for one day, everybody on the mainland comes out to the islands to die in the summer. And how do they do it? They're 80 years old, thinking that they're going to go on a sailboat. They can't even walk from their bedroom to their bathroom without falling down. What do you think is going to happen on a freaking sailboat and a wave comes? Of course, you're on three different blood thinners, boom, you know, and then you're a trauma patient in my ER. And it happened like five times the other day. It's like, what are people thinking? Let's bring grandma out. <clears throat> no. So, <clears throat> so some of these, these thrombin inhibitors, these uh, glycoprotein 2B3A inhibitors, these are things that they're using in the cath lab. But you will see these antiplatelet drugs, aspirin, obviously, you carry that. And these P2Y12 uh, inhibitors, clopidogrel, took me like a year and a half actually to pronounce that word, clopidogrel, uh, Plavix, or I can't even pronounce this one, so I'll just call it Berlenta. Something like that. It'll take me like two years to figure that one out. So Berlenta and Plavix, that's bad. And basically um, what they do is they block um, the ADP granules in the platelets. So when the platelets get the word that, hey, uh, the clotting cascade has been activated, the platelets come running in and they all say to each other, hey, let's hold hands, let's hold hands, everybody hold hands, and then we'll get stuck on this fibrin mesh and we'll make a blood clot. Well, what activates the hands going out is a degranulation of the adenosine diphosphate, and that triggers that, and that these drugs block so they won't hold their hands. So they don't deactivate the platelets completely. Aspirin does that. 
aspirin actually act, deactivates the entire platelet for the span of its life. But you're making more all the time. <clears throat> but platelets will do that. With these drugs, uh, Plavix and Berlenta, uh, if you are on that and you have some sort of bad thing, you'll, it takes like a week for it to go away. So it's the surgeon's nightmare because they'll be juicy and bleeding from everywhere. So we have drugs that we use, cardioversion. If you're beating too fast, like my brother, at 300 times a minute, cardioversion's good. We've got pacemakers for heart rates that are going too slow. We have catheter ablation, where we basically either freeze or burn around the pulmonary arteries to limit uh, the signals jumping around that will give you like a rapid atrial fibrillation. Um, of course, you know we've got the cath lab, the yeah, angioplasty with the drug-eluting stents. Um, then if we, it's too much, they end up getting a coronary artery bypass graft. And then if their heart's weak and they can't contract, we put this impella catheter in. It's kind of cool little device. It's right here. And it has a little motor that spins and sucks blood out of the left ventricle and it shoots it out the aorta. That's cool. I could have come up with that. Maybe not the catheter, but concept. It's like, yeah, of course that's what we need. Uh, and that's how, the, you know, this, that's how this happens. Usually it happens in a bar over a beer or two. And it's like, yeah, we just need to shoot some more blood out. Well, why don't you just get a pump? Um, <clears throat> but it chews up the red blood cells, so there's complications. You can only use it so long. And before we had the impella catheter, we had this intraaortic balloon pump, which is kind of an artificial increased afterload. So as the heart, it's timed with the cardiac cycle, and it'll pop up, this balloon will occlude and give you a sudden increased afterload and then drop and suck the blood out and pop up and with each um, heartbeat. <clears throat> and so they still use those. Then we have the extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. And that basically takes the blood out um, with a little servo magnet and goes through a membrane, oxygenates it, and puts it back in at five liters a minute and just drives the system for you. And they use this a lot um, in the ICUs, using a lot with uh, the coronavirus patients, young coronavirus patients. So it kind of go from one of these devices to ECMO to some sort of ventricular assist device or heart transplantation or, or you die. All right, so lots of treatment options for cardiogenic shock. Obstructive shock, not a lot of treatment options. It's a physical issue. So for attention pneumothorax, you need to put in a big enough catheter, long enough catheter to evacuate that air to reduce that pressure. And where's the best place to put the catheter? Uh, anterior axillary between three and four? Or yeah. Second. second intercostal space if you can't get here. But, you know, if you have a big... Big, uh, big person. You try to go for the thinnest spot, and it's usually the side there. And the catheters that we use here, I've got. Let's see here. I got a 16 gauge. Would that be good? I've got a 20 gauge long. I've got 12 gauge. Uh, so you, you want long and wide. So 
some of them, uh, sometimes you, you put a catheter in, you don't get um, uh, any justice from it. You, you know, it just sucks out a little bit. Uh, and a lot of systems, especially aeromedical systems, are going for the uh, finger thoracostomy. And I used to do this on the helicopter, and, uh, you know, a poor man's chest tube is an endotracheal tube, right? You just make an incision, clamp, open up, stick your finger in, make a hole into the chest, because it's just an open space. The lung is completely collapsed. And the air evacuates out of a big hole. And then if you want a chest tube, take an endotracheal tube, stick it in, suture it in. You can hook it up to Heimlich system. And that's a poor man's chest tube. That's, that's what uh, Billy Brunt, paramedic, would do. Tell you what, we're going to endotracheally intubate your trachea and your chest at the same time. Save your life. <laughs> but a lot of times with tension pneumothorax, either you don't figure it out uh, or you got it figured out, but the catheter that you're using is too small, not long enough, and that's why we've kind of gone to those ARS catheters. Um, and so that's important. And they're actually making catheters that are even bigger than that now. And I have one that's about this long. And at the end, it has a little trigger that will tell you if you're against tissue or if you're in an open space. It has a little indicator to know that you're in the right space. It's kind of cool. There's a little thing that kind of, uh, it, as you're going with the needle, there's a little piece of metal that pushes down, which brings the indicator up. Uh -huh. And then once it's in an open space, it's not being pressed on, it slips back. Uh -huh. And then the indicator goes down, and you know you're in a, a void. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of cool. Yeah. When you put one of these in, do you usually attach it to a syringe and aspirate? Or do you it all depends. Did you see it? Did you hear that? It all depends. Uh, so it all depends on how wound up I am. I just want to like, uh, uh, like I love traumatic arrest because it's like that's a procedure-rich environment. <laughs> it's a procedure-rich environment. Um, uh, if I, you know, the patient's awake and stuff like that, yeah, I'll put a little saline in a syringe and I'll stick it in and I'll see the bubbles and I'm good to go. If you're in a traumatic arrest, I'm just bam, I'm just hitting you both sides and. Yeah, because you're just not really sure. But you can do it either way. It's personal preference. The whole hiss, or you're going to hear the No, you don't. You don't see that. What do you think you see? You might not even see blood, especially if you do it here. But you'll see the hemodynamics improve immediately. You'll see the blood pressure suddenly just go up, because now you can fill the heart, because the pressure's gone. Yeah. <clears throat> and same thing with uh, tamponade. You just take just a little bit of fluid off that heart, and you're going. What do you think the first treatment in the field for cardiac tamponade is? Well, okay, I'll give you that, yeah. Oxygen would be good, because hypoxia is bad. Huh? No, no. They'll just be sitting there, um, and they'll, have, they'll be hypotensive. And I, about a year ago, I had a nurse see one for the first time. It's a patient of mine. And uh, she comes out and she says, Doctor, the blood pressure cuff's broken. And I'm like, well, what do you mean, blood pressure cuff's broken? 
It's like, well, I'm taking the blood pressure. It's low, but then I can't hear it. And then it's back. And then I can't hear it. And I'm like, oh, shit. That's not good. Because that, that's this pulses paradoxus. Every time they breathe in, the blood pressure thing goes away. So it's like boop, 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 boop. That's what she was hearing. So she's trying all these different blood pressure cuffs and then automatic blood pressure cuff. And yeah, they all read hypotensive, but all you needed was to feel the pulse pressure. And you're feeling the pulse, and then it goes away, and then it comes back, and it goes away. That's uh, pericardial tamponade. And the first treatment is fluid. You need to increase that stroke volume, get as much pressure in there as you can. Second treatment, fluid. It's, fluid, it's a fluid-dependent thing, right? And then finally, pericardial synthesis. Now, all the paramedics, and even ER doctors, how many pericardial synthesis do we do a month? Zero, right? A year, pretty much zero. I've done maybe like, well, I've done actually quite a few of them because I would do it on every single dead body in the city of Pittsburgh. They didn't die. If they had uh, PEA, I did it. And then I'd let the paramedics do it. And I was training. So, um, but we don't do it very often. Um, we basically do ventricular sticks is what we're doing. Uh, and so I think they're kind of pulling that away from the pre-hospital uh, realm and kind of putting that in the ultrasound cath lab ER crash, uh, you know, disaster uh, courses, but they're kind of pulling it away. So really when we say obstructive shock from uh, pericardial tamponade, we're looking at fluid, fluid, fluid. Just load them up as much as you can and get in. <clears throat> All right. We still can carry that in our, we have it in our protocol. And that mannequin actually is made to kind of try to train for it, but... Yeah, and we can train for it and do it, and I would do it in, in a heartbeat. We've the state, about, though, is pull, trying to pull that back. Okay. Yeah. yeah we talked so about how it probably isn't going to do anything. Yeah. yeah. How much longer do we have? Yeah. yeah so I've only seen it once work, and it was a gunshot wound to the chest. One brother shot the other brother, and the paramedic's name was Weishan Coons. It was back in, like, 1995, and uh, they were doing CPR, and I really wanted to see a gunshot wound, and I was in med control. I'm like, put a needle in the chest, suck out the blood. If the pulse comes back, put him on the helicopter, and it, that's exactly what happened. They flew him over, and I think I actually I got a picture in here of his heart, of the thoracotomy. did a thoracotomy. He had a big, huge, massive bullet hole in his heart, and uh, he didn't make it. But I got to play. And now I'm old, and I really don't want to play that game anymore. Not with all the other blood diseases and stuff. All right. So uh, anaphylactic, we'll, we'll be done here pretty quick. Uh, anaphylactic shock, leaky pipes, epinephrine's the way to go, fluid. Um, the, uh, if you saw somebody like this, their blood pressure was 60, and you need to do an epinephrine drip, tell me within the next 10 seconds how you make it up, how do you give it? Okay, so you're talking about a push dose presser. Oh, I'm sorry. That's that's okay. That's that is correct answer because you still, you know, you got the epi in front of you and you got a saline flush, but you don't have a bag of fluid. So that would be a, a good response. And you give 10 mics of epi. Um, the poor man's Bubba's recipe for 
an empty drip is you take, it's the rule of ones. Remember the rule of ones. Take one milligram of epinephrine. It can be a little tiny one milligram thing or a vial, one milligram, or it could be 10 cc's, but still one milligram cardiac epi. So I take away all these one to 1,000, one to 10,000, math. We don't want math. We don't want math. It makes me anxious. Uh, take a milligram, put it in a liter, and then run it um, at one cc, and then increase it by uh, one cc um, every minute that you don't get what you want. So if I put a milligram in 1,000 cc's uh, of fluid, what's my concentration? You know it's going to end up with a one, right? Because it's the rule of ones. Don't ever use ratios with me. I don't know. I don't know math. I had diarrhea with calculus for like for two years. <laughs> it's one microgram per ml. So one milligram is a thousand micrograms. So when you're dealing with epi, you might want to change over from the whole milligram thing to micrograms. When you give an adult an epi shot, 0.3, you're giving them 300 micrograms of epinephrine intramuscularly. So if you think about it from that point of view, it will help you with the IV epinephrine. So you have, so you're able to give volume and uh, epi at the same time with this type of setup. So you give, uh, you got one microgram per ml and you just kind of increase it, you double it every minute, you're not getting what you need. Um, and you're not giving too much. Now, with a push dose presser, you're giving 10 times what, uh, right? 10 micrograms versus one microgram. And you might overwhelm the system, end up giving a little old lady a heart attack or something. But that's your easiest way. And you can increase it, increase it, increase it. Yeah. Yeah, so you, use a, so you use a macro drip chamber. That's 20, 20 drops per ml, right? That's right. It's 10. It's 10. It's like, I just want somebody to correct me. It's like, that's right. 60 for a micro, 10 for a macro. So, you, so it's easy to say you're looking, I'm going to give you 10 drops. Boom. You just got a mic. I'm going to give you another. Now I'm going to give you 20 because you didn't do what I wanted. Oh, so you're not doing it by rate. You're just giving the sheer quantity. You're giving 10 drops. Yeah, but I know 10 drops is one ml, and I know that one ml is one microgram. And so you don't, do, you don't start improving. Now I'm going to give you uh, two mls. I'm going to give you 20 drops. Then I'm going to give you 40 drops. Then I'm going to give you 80 drops. Then I'm going to give you 160 drops. And you can, well, by the time you get to 80 drops, obviously, it's going to be hard to look. But uh, you can go up to like 120 if you had to. But yeah. What are, are you saying that um, that you're watching for a response uh, per minute? So you would be given 10 drips in one minute, and then 20 drips in the next minute, and 30 in the next minute. Yeah. Or are you just saying 10 drips if it didn't happen? I'm going 20 more drips. You know, or you're talking per minute, right? Like yeah, saying. per minute. Okay. You're, it's just you're you're assessing. It's like yep. your blood pressure is still low. You're going more. You're going more. And you just kind of inch it up. And but what Bubba would do, Bubba is like, I tell you what, my vision's bad. I'm just going to open this sucker up 
a little bit at a time. It's all in the thumb, you know. Uh, and you just kind of sit there until they get better, and then you kind of slow it back down, you know. So people do that, right? Because they've done it so many times, they kind of have the feel, the gestalt. Uh, but when you're new at it, looking at the drops and knowing exactly how much you're giving is important, yeah. So this seems better to actually see it visually, but you're looking at your bag, count 10, you shut it down. Isn't that 10 still on the line? Well, you bleed, so that's a good point. You bleed it all the way to the end. You bleed, so you make your bag up, you bleed, so there's epinephrine all the way to the end of that line. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But that happens in like more concentrated drips that, you know, you don't do that. You just squirt it in and then the first part of it is all just saline or, or D5W or something. So now you're adding to my concept of the line and the IV. So you've got it bled all the way to the end of the line and then you count your 10. You can be assured that 10 drops are going into the body as 10 are coming out. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Remember, like he's talking per minute, and we can't take vital signs in just one minute. So, if you set it at ten drips per minute, you might be three minutes in before you actually get your BP and decide, you know, one, you know, ten drops in a minute isn't doing it. I'm going to increase to twenty drops in a minute. So you increase it to twenty drops in a minute, and it may be three more minutes before you get another BP. Yeah and actually say, oh, that 20 drops per minute has made an improvement, or it hasn't, I'm going to 30 drops per minute. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's not like you're watching just 10 drops, you know, one time. You're, you're letting it flow at 10 drops per minute continuously until you get your BP and you can then see if you've made a difference, right? Yeah, and, so. I, and I'll tell you what Bubba does, and I ran into this once, um, when the Olympic, they did the Olympics up in Canada, uh, Cascade Ambulance, this is a long time ago, uh, they got a call to go up there and they asked me, it's an ALS call, it's a, some lady with like um, Guillain-Barre syndrome, uh, and she's a U.S. resident, and she's on this little tiny, tiny hospital going up to Whistler, and uh, all the road was under construction, getting ready for the Olympics, so we get up there, and sure enough, she's in this one-bed ICU, which was not even an ICU, it was just like a little room, and they had a life pack, and that was it. And she had an IV in her foot, and they didn't have any central line kits, nothing. And they had her on dopamine. And we had the monitor on her, and uh, we started off, and we get stuck in traffic. We're backed up. And so long, it was hours and hours, and um, the batteries on the monitor died. And so I'm like, all right, it's time to go old school. I'm using vasopressors, and I'm using her pulse. So you got your epidrip. Bubba, paramedic, is a, no problem. I got it. Pulse pressure, dial. I'm feeling, I'm feeling something here. That's good. Or if I'm not feeling anything, I'm going to give him some more until I feel something there because I'm supposed to feel something there. And, yeah. So, I mean, that's the art, you know. You won't see that in any books, but that's really kind of, the way you can do it because you know about the physiology. You're looking for that pulse pressure. Is it thready? Is it bounding? If you open that sucker up, do you think you'd have a big, huge boom, boom, boom? Your heart would be, you know? You felt that before, right? The butterflies in your chest? Yeah. Or the patient will tell you if they're alert. So, so that's an easy way when you can't, you've lost your mind and you don't know what's going on. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. It's like, God, I can't remember how to make an epi drip. Rule of ones. 
rule of ones. One milligram, one liter of fluid, do it one cc, double it every minute until you get your effect. That there is just brilliant. <clears throat> okay. Septic shock, leaky pipes, endotoxins. You get poop in your blood. Um, uh, you guys have been, it's been beaten over your head, the whole Sears criteria, and it's a continuum disease ending in septic shock, which is, is, is bad. Um, and the, the big thing is, is we want to identify these people. That's your job. Your job is to identify them and then start some fluid therapy. I think we tend to over, we give too much fluid sometimes to people. We don't take in different things into account, like maybe a bad heart or something like that. But getting adequate access, getting them ready, and getting them into the hospital is going to be the key thing. Can we take a quick question, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Burn through this quickly. Yeah. Christopher Brunneman. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> it tells you that no patient ever needs anything bigger than a 20. Uh, that's wrong. That's wrong. <laughs> that's wrong. So uh, neurogenic shock, you don't see a lot of these, but occasionally you do. Um, and uh, uh, you have decreased sympathetic tone, which gives you what happens to your systemic vascular resistance? completely dilates. And then you have increased parasympathetic tone. And what's that mediated through? Slows your heart through the vagus nerve, right? So that's where you get the 60-60 shock. In other words, you don't get a tachycardia with your hypotension. So if you don't see a tachycardia with a hypotension, think about, hey, can you move your arms and your legs? What's the best pre-hospital way to tell if somebody is paralyzed when they're unconscious? That's right. That's right. Nobody told you that going in. You're going to have to might potentially have to do a Harbor View handshake with somebody. <laughs> but that's right. And the, is I brought in a trauma code the other, a few days ago, and I heard, a, heard a PA call for rectal tone. I was like, hey, why would you guys do that? Yeah. And embryologically, um, it's connected. Yeah. Meaning what happens? It completely relaxes. If you lose... Your brainstem, uh, if you like C three, four, five, yeah. you'll lose your rectal tone because so it's connected to your neck. Yeah, yeah. If there's any pressure there, but with lot, complete loss of rectal tone, it's just like completely flaccid. It's just like yeah. no Zach, problem. Is it, is it, <laughs> no, it, it's a digital examination. Yeah, yeah. You actually have to stick your finger in, pull out a plum. Yeah, one or two. Doesn't matter. Depends. Keep the rings off. Uh, okay. So, uh, so neurogenic shock, you can kind of work it through. Uh, you get massive vasodilatation. The thing that works for this is phenylephrine. It's another vasopressor that uh, increases blood pressure without completely bringing up your heart like crazy. And that's another push-dose pressor that we use in the ERs, phenylephrine versus uh, epi. So it gives you a decreased tissue perfusion, but again, it's rare. The one that you'll see the most is sepsis, and know um, that the mortality rate, if you enter into septic shock, is really high. When you get follow-ups on your patients, and all your patients are dying like five days in the hospital, or you know, and I come when I'm doing medic 45s follow-ups, and you know, it's like, oh yeah, they saved somebody awesome, and then you kind of go down the notes. It's like, oh yeah, we had that talk. You know, like, they're not really doing great. We might as well just withdraw support and 
and they don't do well. So it takes a few days for it to occur. And it's because they get into this lethal triad, coagulopathy, hypothermia, metabolic acidosis. That would be a test question because that is basically the bottom line. That's how you die. That is how you die. The acidosis redu reduces your myocardial performance, gives you hypotension, uh, you lose your coagulation factors, uh, you start bleeding more, and lactic acid builds up. All right. Uh, so treatment, I think you guys know how to treat shock. Uh, scene safety, determine the mechanism of injury, time of insult. So in other words, how long are we into this? And then identify the shock state. Check their mental status, check their vital signs, especially their respiratory rate, GCS, skin signs. Identify your patient priorities. Start with circulation. Airway management obviously is huge because uh, it's all about hypoxia. Um, and control any external hemorrhage, rapid focus exam, um, determine the amount and rate of blood loss. Sometimes that's difficult. You, know, you overestimate, you underestimate. Um, thermal control is about halfway down, so thermal control is huge. If it's you know, 40 degrees out and you haven't um, turned up the heater in your ambulance before you went to see the patient, bad on you. If you're doing it when the patient's in the back of your cold ambulance. Uh, so these are the things to think of. But look where um, fluid bolus is in this. It's way down here. Okay? It's way down here in the treatment of shock. Um, immobilizing and splinting. Um, for uh, significant hemorrhagic shock, permissive hypotension is important. So we don't give a lot of fluids. We don't want a normal blood pressure. We don't want it. We want a blood pressure uh, map of about 50 to 60. If we get a normal blood pressure, all of those things we talked about with the vessels you know, clamping down and platelet plugs, you're going to blow all of those and then get rid of all the rest of his blood until he's just circulating crystal fluid. If this EMS system was on the ball and it was doing everything I would want it to do, I would have EMS-1 with a refrigerator in his in his uh, vehicle with blood in it. And they'd go out on, well, they already go out on all the big stuff, right? But they'd be bring, bringing blood. Seattle finally started doing that after they went down to uh, um, Austin, Texas. I was there uh, when they were there. And they're like, yeah, we really need to consider doing this. We were doing a big, huge procedure lab where we were cutting people's arms off in a big, huge hotel. Like on the second floor, we're doing exploratory laparotomy, and everybody's walking around like, why is it so cold in here? And we had like all these uh, cadavers in the conference rooms. It was pretty cool. But they said, you know, we, we should be giving blood. And the helicopters, uh, you know, back in 1990, I was flying in helicopters. We carried four units of blood because we know blood works. Uh, so that's what you want to give. You don't really want to give a bunch of saline, you know, four liters. Um, and when Medic 1 in Seattle kind of grew up, there was Plan A2. It's like, you know, two large bore IVs, two liters of fluid, bring them in. Um, and so we, don't, we tend not to do that anymore. And then it's important to activate, you know, whichever team you need. Is it a cardiogenic, cath code, sepsis team, trauma team? So it's become specialized now. And then, again, with shock, you're going to have to make a call in the field. Um, is this person 
in hemorrhagic shock, and do they, need, do they need TXA? And the reason is, the earlier you give it, the better it works. If you give it at three hours, it's like, forget it. You, you already lost your window. If you give it in the first 15 to 20 minutes, it's actually going to work. And I'll show you kind of the decline that it takes. Meds that you do not want to miss on a trauma patient are all of these meds. These are all the uh, blood thinning medications. And of course, beta blockers are important because, you know, they're hypotensive, but they got a blood or a heart rate of 60. But you're saying to yourself, I don't get this. This is not neurogenic shock. This is not neurogenic shock. Um, but oh, they're on a they're on a beta blocker. So that's important to know. Uh, that will trip you up. Uh, but things like Plavix, Coumadin. Have you guys ever heard the story of Warfarin? WARF is an uh, acronym for the Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation. Did you know that? So there was this, uh, just really quick side. there was this farmer in Madison, Wisconsin. One day he walked out to his cows. They are out there eating clover, but they were dropping dead. They were bleeding to death. He's like, what the hell am I going to do? This is my livelihood. So he goes in to his wife. He says, honey, all the cows are dying. And she's like, no problem. Let's bring them to the farm extension of the University of Wisconsin. They'll figure it out for us. So they did. They did the necropsy of the cows. And they found that there was this molecule called coumarin, which they were getting from the silage of the clove that they were eating. And it blocks vitamin K. Vitamin K is needed as a dependent enzyme to make the clotting cascade work. So they thought, hey, maybe we can make this into a medical thing because of clotting and blood clots. And so they called it warfarin. And WARF is Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation. And the IN is from the coumarin molecule. They call it warfarin, but they call it coumarin as a trade name. And they are the richest uh, alumni association in the country because of it. That's the story. But if you ask somebody, do you know the story of coumarin? or warfarin, the first thing they'll say, 100% of the time, they'll say, it's rat poison. Yeah. And sure enough, it is rat poison. But um, that's the story. That's why the Yellowstone episodes I've been watching, when they dump clover in the fields for the cows to eat, that's why they all die, right? Yeah. You guys are watching Yellowstone? Uh, you can't have, you don't have time for Yellowstone. <laughs> 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 but yeah, that's what it is. So, so permissive hypotension, big concept. You don't want to get their blood pressure up too high. So if you've got a blood pressure of 80 to 90, that's good enough. Anything above 90, you know, you need to back off until we can get uh, control of the bleeding. Because the gonzo, the surgeon, is, you know, heal with steel. I'm going to heal him with steel. Um, once we get in uh, and they've bled a lot, we're going to activate the massive transfusion protocol. We're going to give them one-to-one-to-one. Uh, packed red blood cells, uh, fresh frozen plasma, and platelets. And usually we activate this if we think that they're going to take more than 10 units of blood in, the, in a 24-hour period, they're going to undergo a pretty difficult surgery, we're going to do that. Um, here's the whole thing with fluid therapy. I'll let you read it, but basically the rate of flow is proportional to the fourth power of the radius of the cannula and inversely related to the length, which means the bigger it is, the shorter it is, the more fluid comes out. All you have to do is read all of those uh, cannulas, look at their gauges, and see how much they put out, and it's pretty obvious. So with a 14-gauge, short, 50-millimeter cannula, 
uh, under pressure, 384 mLs per minute. Wow. How long would it take for you to put a liter of fluid in somebody? Three, Three minutes, right? So if you've got the right device, you can't say that you couldn't give them enough fluid in the field unless you're coming from like the nursing home across the street or something. Um, if you've got a 14 gauge, 15 centimeter, then it drops because the length is longer, right? And that's a cordis device. And then finally, a triple lumen, you think, oh yeah, it's a central line, they gotta be able to give more. Look at that, little tiny distal port, but it's really, really long, and it's the length kills you, so only 116 mLs, and that's under pressure. And just by gravity, 69. 14 gauge short, 236. So if you wanna see it in action, there's a couple bags of fluid, spike them, just have somebody sit, set it, and you can measure it. I got measuring containers there. Um, but here's the conclusion uh, that the biggest thing you need to do is put them in the ambulance and bring them to the hospital. That's really kind of where they've, they've come in all of this in 2020. Increased scene time and the number of procedures are associated with greater mortality for both blunt and penetrating trauma. Um, so Start all your stuff on the way to the hospital. Get your airway management, you know, controlled, but get them, get them gone. And so if you, if you think about your, you know, different gauges of your IV specifically when you're trying to make sure you're able to get fluid on the way to the hospital or they're able to give it once they get to the hospital, so you're starting 14, 16, uh, hopefully at least an 18 on trauma. Um, one of the problems that we all have with defining a blood pressure on a rapidly evolving scene like that to know how much fluid we need to give is frequently difficult. Let's say you have a kick-ass 14 in and you know you can give that you know, a whole liter in three minutes if, if you needed to potentially, but by the time you're, you've moved them into the back of the rig, you're on a vacuum mattress, you're stripping clothes off, you're getting your IV started, you maybe get your first BP and it is you know, 78 over whatever, and then you're thinking, okay, I'm gonna give, I'm gonna give a full liter, but could you end up actually overshooting in mm -hmm. that three minutes to where now you take another pressure, you're almost to the hospital now, you're bumping down the road, and the, the automatic cuff says it's 120 over something, you're like, holy shit, I just overshot, and I might be doing the, you know, this detrimental thing, where mm -hmm. you're, you're breaking down clot, you're, you're wrecking, you know, the blood volume they do have in there, Mm -hmm. So how do you how do you gauge it? You're talking about Bubba a lot, like I'll tell you how Bubba does it. That's how Bubba I does it different. So Bubba says, like, yeah. Bubba says this patient's sick. I'm gonna give him a bottle of water. I'm gonna give him a bottle of water. How much is in a bottle of water? <laughs> five hundred cc's. Five hundred cc's. I used to say it was a can of Coke. Sometimes I would say it was a cup of coffee. But bottle of water actually says five hundred mLs on there. So you give him a bottle of water. You give everybody a bottle of water. You're in pulmonary edema. Hell, I'll give you a bottle of water. If you don't get better, they don't give you pressors, and I'll intubate you or give you CPAP. Uh, so even with cardiogenic shock, we'll try to maximize that preload, even though it may be already too much. But any patient, anybody, fluid therapy, you can give 500 cc's and get away with it. You give more than 500 cc's, now it gets a little bit more dicier. you got to know. And how do you know uh, you're getting better? Is you feel a pulse. I usually go femoral. Bubba goes femoral because it's easier because it could... It's sometimes it's hard to get this pulse. Or you can do here. And you feel that pulse pressure. You feel it. And as you give that fluid, that pulse pressure should get stronger. Now, that's usually if they're unresponsive. If they're responsive, 
if you can talk to them and you know they have improvementation, that there is your ticket to say you're doing the right thing. Continue on with that. But I totally agree. When you get into the real world and all these different things are going on, my plan when I get an IV is I get 500 mLs. Okay. And then I'll figure it out like after that. that. Yeah. yeah. You're at least priming things a little bit and you're yeah. hopefully not overshooting and causing detriment, but you're, you're doing what you should because they've had an insult. Their body's going to be responding to this trauma. If they have any blood loss at all, they do need to be primed up a little bit, but not to the point where you're going to end up pushing their pressure too high and yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so you, you're, you know, you might not be the procedure guy. You're the guy that's supposed to be figuring everything out. So your partner gives, hey, give them 500. Oh, let me figure this out. You figure out the shock state, and you go, uh, yeah, he's going to need more. And then you deploy the second 500. And then at one liter, you're like, all right, where are we at? What's going on? And then you can deploy another 500. And if you deploy four of them in two two liters, you've already figured out that yeah, this is really bad. I mean, this is, you know, stage four shock, something like that. But, yeah, 500 is kind of the equation that I use. All right, so you guys know bleeding control, so I'm just going to go past this, but I had to, like, throw in some cool pictures. This one? Yeah, what's that? I uh, got his hand caught in the cookie jar. Uh, actually, it's a farm, a farm incident. Farm machinery. Farm machinery squished it. Oh, yeah. and this one, firecracker. 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 I mean, if you can't release it, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I've actually done that a couple of times in the field, and I carry what's called a giggly. Giggly? You know what a giggly is? Is it like a dongle? No, it's, it's, <laughs> a, it's a steel wire embedded with diamonds, and it's got a ring on either side. So if you're like a deer hunter or something, and you're going to do something, and oh. you just do this, and it takes it off. So I went down to Austin, and we had this big, huge procedure lab, and one of them is somebody's trapped in the field. In my case, was a guy is in the middle of Pennsylvania. I went out there on the helicopter. He was cutting something down in the middle of winter. The tree fell on him. He was stuck. And finally, somebody came across him, and he was pinned there, and we couldn't get this massive tree off. We didn't have any chainsaws or anything. I had to cut his leg off. And uh, uh, basically, you use this. You kind of cut around, and then you, you drag it through. Well, I'll tell you what works even better. A sawzall. Sawzall works great. So we were doing, I believe, I swear to God, downtown Austin at uh, whatever big hotel that was, Marriott Hotel. We had a sawzall in a conference room, and we were cutting people's human limbs off. And it works great. 15 bucks on Amazon. <laughs> yeah, the, the giggly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's always a good thing to have in the glove box. Yeah. Nah, that's that's damage. That's damage control on your own. You know, with, you're with your buddies. Exactly. Things go bad. Yeah. Things go really, really bad. You know, you've been drinking. <laughs> but but sometimes you gotta literally cut your losses. <laughs> uh, the first thing that the people in the hospital say about this, that's a great uh, tamponade device or sheeting it works great too, uh, is that. People put it on wrong. Put it up too high. It's a thing that's supposed to be down here. So if, if you just trigger that in your mind, and this is what happens automatically when I'm doing something like this, I trigger it and say, whatever you do, put it over the greater trochanter. Don't put it up here because that will make things way worse. And I'll show you uh, 
an x-ray, an open book pelvic fracture, and you'll kind of understand why that would be bad. But you're basically trying to limit that volume of bleeding, um, and that's huge. And then uh, the rule of any hypotensive, unresponsive trauma patient automatically gets pelvic sheeting or pelvic uh, splints just because you can't really tell whether they've got an open or a, a, a pelvic injury. Uh, you guys have, are familiar with the quick clot, right? The Kalin, so I'll let you read about that. I'll tell you, the, uh, the combat medics, they were using this quick clot granular stuff. Freaking hated it because they're out in the field. It's windy. Stuff's flying all over the place. It's going in their mouth. It's going in their eyes. Now they're blind. They can't shoot. You know, and they hated it. And so then they came up with the impregnated gauze, which is great for packing. The surgeons hated it because they had all these little things all over the place in the operative field, and they're, like, trying to pick it all out. The early ones, uh, was, it was shrimp uh, shells, okay? And it would dehydrate the blood to bring the clotting factors closer together. This new stuff, the Kalin and Zeolite combat gauze, it actually kind of activates the clotting cascade, and it's way better. And it works pretty good. Uh, tourniquets, I, get, I am sure you guys are experts at tourniquets, but I can tell you this. The majority of people that put on a tourniquet don't get it tight enough. They get it just tight enough to make them bleed worse. Okay, because they get it to venous point. So I know that if I deploy a tourniquet, it comes as a package deal. Tourniquet plus ketamine, right? If you are not screaming because I have completely taken out all of your arterial supply and now you're getting hypoxic in your extremity, you're going to be screaming. So that's where the ketamine comes in. But so all these things on you see on TV where the cops like putting it on and like... He's actually just making himself bleed more because, you know, and then he's, you know, continuing on after the suspect. You know, it's like, no, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> so, <clears throat> yeah, doesn't happen. Uh, proximal clamping, this whole thing about uh, traumatic thoracotomy, it's past its time. 99% um, of the time, especially with blunt trauma, it doesn't work. The only time it really works is if it's penetrating trauma and you had some sort of sign of life when you walked into the ER when we're going to do this. So that's a very limited number of people. And even then, the mortality is pretty high. But we, you know, once a year or so, we end up doing it at St. Joe's. Uh, here's the kind of the visual thing for TXA. And you can see how quickly your benefit goes down. If you're 40 minutes in the field, by the time you figure out you want to use it, look at all the benefit that you've lost. So it's important. The things, worst case scenario, if you give it, could they have a DVT or a PE? Maybe. But at least they'll be alive to experience it. Um, and so give it early, uh, one gram. And uh, then finally, uh, figure out the underlying problem. Figure out what compensation the body's doing. Are they decompensating from that? How are we going to maintain that active perfusion? How are we going to oxygenate them um, and make sure that they're warm? Because that's usually where we lose out. Here's the guy with the bullet hole. Came from San Juan Island. <clears throat> nice big hole there. It's like, great. He had nothing left. No, no blood in his body. 
Um, so we see something like this, damage control surgery, real quickly, like family member gets hurt, they're at Harborview, of course, you become the expert and the translator, right? If it hasn't happened to you, it will. It'll happen to you. You will become the translator for all the medical stuff. And so let me just tell you some of the things that we have in our, you know, bag of tricks, Felix the cat. Um, we can do shunts around the bleeding until we can repair it. We can ligate vessels um, for things like liver lacerations, splenic lacerations. We can pack and just kind of wait for the bleeding to control, uh, try to keep them warm uh, to help the hypothermia. And sometimes we can't close it. Things start swelling up. We've given too much fluid and you can't close the abdomen. So we have these cool little bags now and we want to get them off the table as quickly as we can. So we put these little um, uh, pressure systems uh, on their abdomen. So you can see that in ICUs um, that we can kind of suck off fluid and pressure. And then when all the fluids kind of go back from the intra, uh, not intracellular, uh, the interstitial tissue back into the intravascular tissue and things kind of swell back down, then we can kind of close them back up. But we want them off the table as quickly as we can. So this is what we call an open book pelvic fracture. And so if we put this thing up here, up here, we're just widening it more, right? And what we want to do is we want to limit this big, huge hematoma here. So we need it down here. We need it down here and you try to bring that together, okay? So that's the whole reason that that splint is, was made. And a lot of times you have to tell, you, know, you have to continuously tell EMTs because when it was first put out there, everybody with a hip fracture, the little ladies coming in screaming, you know, and they just got this simple hip fracture, they just fell at home. To get that x-ray, that's high-speed motor vehicle accident into a wall, right? You need high velocity, high impact to get something like that. Um, a lot of people die from uh, pelvic injuries, and what we can do is we can do uh, angiography and embolization. So we kind of go in under interventional guidance with catheters, and we put these little springs, and then they clot little clots around it, and we block the blood vessels. That's how we control the bleeding. So we bring it up there, put the springs, sometimes put pellets, different things, and the body sees it and kind of tries to clot around it, and that's how you can get a clot. So that's kind of a cool way to do it. Um, now we have something called Reboa. Have you guys heard of that? It's cool. It's cool. Uh, so it's a resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta. So when I was doing this stuff in big trauma centers, we would do a thoracotomy and we'd have this bar that had a T on it. And we'd take the bar and we'd find the uh, uh, inferior part of the aorta and we'd just put the pressure on that so the blood wouldn't go to the lower extremity so we'd fill up the, the heart and the brain. But this does the same thing depending on where the level of the injury is. It basically blows up a balloon in the artery and you know, you're able to resuscitate the patient and then you can bring it down as they get better. You go through the femoral for access, yeah. But easy. Well, the lower extremities are not going to get blood flow, so it's a temporizing measure. Um, but we don't, you mean cool down or stick? Yeah, no, we don't. We just 
it's, it's really it's a crash type thing just to kind of get somebody back up to where we can stabilize them, load them up with blood and fluids, and yeah. So so this is the sweet spot. Um, we can give not, there's not enough fluid, or we give too much fluid. Um, you know, it's kind of like you know Goldilocks and the Three Bears. So um, you're limited to two liters of fluid. If you're going for a third liter, you really kind of want to consider, hey, we better uh, think about something else. So, and the final message on this is wear your seatbelts. That's a bad seatbelt sign there. That guy actually had a torn liver as a kid, torn liver and a torn pancreas and a ruptured spleen, and looked just fine. Um, huh? He lived? Oh, he lived, yeah, he lived. But it was an underappreciated shock because he had a shirt on. Nobody cut his shirt off. So, strip and flip, right? And so, strip and flip would have helped this guy. And then this, uh, so, so wear your seatbelts. Don't get run over by any trucks. This is a guy who got run over by a truck. Didn't have to do a thoracotomy on this guy. And uh, keep your hand out of the cookie jar. That's pretty much my advice there. Um, all right. 